telling stories, but it seems like a stretch. I'm from the trenches, I got scars on my flesh. It taught me lessons that are hard to forget. I keep pushing and pushing till I got nothing left. Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard my boys in Bayway representing New Jersey. This is Stretching the Truth featuring the one, the only, Ant Money. Tell you, man, this this band is something special. This is on uh, the World of Bayway Volume 2. Days is distributing it, putting it out there. Good on Lumpy. They, uh, the band itself is just one of these bands that harkens you back to the true glory age of all this kind of crazy music that's very popular right now. And I was deeply, deeply in with the Shattered Realm and the Punishments and all that. And it's still fresh. It doesn't sound like a rehash, kind of like a revisit, so to speak. You know, um, but you can check them out. We're going to have links up on the actual show notes, which is always T-I-H-C podcast. And then um, it's been a week. You know, we uh, came, we saw, it was something special. What Kurt Tiss and the guys from the Crowfoot, which is like, maybe it's the production company because that venue is the Russell Industrial Complex, but Curtis is a promoter in Detroit from the Crowfoot. And Jimmy from Edgeman Printing and then alongside Ramona, who's a longtime promoter in Detroit Hardcore and Punk Rock from Black Iris. Uh, booking what they did was absolutely uh, unreal still the vibes were crazy it felt like there was something special in the air maybe because i am usually working at stuff like that that i don't get the same feeling but to play it and be a part of it was truly an honor and, and something it's just it's just interesting to me to see on the other end how it feels at the end user, so to speak. I'm not often the end user. Those of you who uh, listened to the podcast last week, had some people come up to me, made a lot of great conversations about it. My brother, Jay Pedigree from Mind Force, shouted it out. And and he's right on target. It's not a diss. It's just, let's be ourselves. You know? Let's be ourselves out there in hardcore for a change, you know? I think once again to say that the people who were involved in that event trumped anything that I think this is hardcore can do. Uh, just the light thing, that big giant tire backdrop of lights looks so cool. Colder's life looks so epic. These digital crazy colors behind him was fucking fantastic. And then, and then you know, the first person I had a really great conversation with when I got in was Beast from Hate Inc. Known that guy a lot of years, and um, I'm gonna have him on the show at some point because his story is fucking fantastic. Touched on some things that we both are um, falling into in our time, and just some really good human being. Great to see him up there with Hate Inc. Great to see a lot of my friends of Detroit. I, there's just so many good good stories I could just go on forever, but I am very happy that I got to be a part of that and was there firsthand to hug my brother Jeff and. Thank you to all the young kids for legitimately actually supporting all this shit. Like I said on stage, 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. So I'm glad that it, it, it is that way now. And it's that way for the coldest lives, the bayways, for a lot of people. And that's the best we can hope for, I think. 
in this situation, there is always shifts, paradigm shifts where people get in excited or support and you feel like the entire hardcore scene is dominated by popularity or something like that. I don't know. But for me, I feel as if specifically that in this situation that everybody present was just there to celebrate not only Cold as Life, but all the bands. And it felt like a lot of people, which is fucking good to know. Good to know that a good thing like this was supported so well. Speaking of support, we got a lot of cool shit going on. A lot of cool shit. Friday, today, October 13th, Friday the 13th, we are going to have All Out War celebrating 25 years of four of those who were crucified. At the Phoenixville Polish Club. Tickets are still available. Uh, you know, I'm going to say something that's not nice, but I, it ain't the first time. H- how is it that in, in today's economy or today's world of things, why, why am I still getting my balls broken every fucking day about some weird asshole who has a question? Got a question about... The show, when's it starting? The shit says it right there. It's, it's right in the fucking front, man. It's like we put all this shit on the internet, like you have to go get the tickets there. So many different avenues, and yet people are still in the DMs needing direct information. Like they're not sure. Just just check in. Want to make sure this is right. It's so fucking annoying. 25 years is a long time, and that record was so unfucking believable. They're going to be out there with Tombs, Strength for a Reason, Funeral Reach, <coughs> Funeral Leech, not Reach, and Simulacra. It's tomorrow. So, or tonight rather, whatever you want to call it. And then, this fucking Greg, man, he's on point. We got the New Jersey Tsunami shows. Now both are sold the fuck out. So, if you ain't got a ticket, I mean, you can try to show up in Salty's and Lake Como. Maybe you'll get in two shows. Morning, night, both sold out. Both crazy lineups. Great on Greg, great on Tsunami for making that happen. And then Monday night, we got Ringworm coming through with the freight train and Conduit from New Jersey. Getting ready. Those guys are getting ready to drop some shit. More more news on that soon. But that's at the Broken Goblet out in uh, Ben Salem. It's going to be fucking cool. We're going to be out there hanging out, giving out flyers. And we could talk forever about this blacklisted shows. Friday night is a nighttime show. That's sold out. Saturday's an uh, afternoon show. That's sold out. October 29th, we've got Harm's Way at the church. Fleshwater, in ground. It's going to be something cool. Boundaries. Not Boundaries. Um, I forget the other band. But that's going to be a nighttime show at the church on the Sunday, October 29th. Then we also got our friends Darkbuster with uh, Noise, Vulture Raid, and Hard Turf. That's also going on at the Bro- uh, Broken Goblet. So you got two shows the uh, Sunday night before Halloween. Philly, it's going to be fucking wild. Then the following week, Pain of Truth. This is the Not Through Blood record release tour. And it happens to hit alongside another tour going through. So we got Pain of Truth, Koyo, Lice Questions, Vomit Forth, Adrian, Balmara, Nomad. At our favorite place, the Phoenixville, once again. And then um, a little bit later on, November 10th, Dying Wish, Boundaries, Foreign Hands, and Roman Candle. We played a song from Roman Candle for him. Make sure you're checking that out. 
And now way out in December, we've got Angel Dust, Candy, Missing Link, and Lucy. This is at Underground Arts as, um, as well. And a show that just got announced. And uh, my boy Kareem, he's fucking from Frankfurt, legit. His band Shout Out, we've played there for, we played you for uh, them a couple times. So you should be aware who the fuck Shout Out is by now. And, uh, dude, he put, he, he put it together. He's trying to do some things for the homeless. November 18th at Bonks, 7 p.m. This is for the Everything Project. All the proceeds are going to go to help homelessness in the area. We got Hard Turf, Hyper Fang, Disconnect, which you guys just heard a couple weeks ago. Shot Out, you heard them like a couple months ago. Our Frozen Freight Train, Fool's Game. And then that fucking punishment. So, uh, yeah. Punishment. <laughs> We're doing it. So, be there. Be square. It's going to be something cool. You got some cool shows coming up. More more to be announced. Everything's at phillyhcshows.com and on Instagram and Twitter. This, this podcast today is an interesting one. For those of you who may be like, not only like who's doggy dog or whatever, it goes beyond not only just who's doggy dog, but like for me, it's an impactful thing. And the story starts in the East Coast, New Jersey, and they tell it greatly. And we've had Dan come up um, months ago. I don't even remember the number of the episode, but um, Dan, who was in Mucky Pop, joined Murphy's Law, ended up in Doggy Dog, left Doggy Dog. Now he's in Kings Never Die. You know, uh, he played in Leeway for a bit. He actually wrote that song. Um, he was a guitar player for the I'm Your Pusher shit with Eddie Leeway. Um, we had him on. And, and really, this is just a fucking one of those bands that just popped out. Stories about a band at the right time. The right crazy amount of uh, mixed sounds. Really an amalgamation of horns, heavy music, the the infusion of a little bit of funkiness, some hip-hop, and they played a lot of hardcore shows, and they made, dude, they had some scary fucking moments, man, and we talk about it, and we talk about a lot about the motivation of the band and where they went, and then when things didn't pan out for them with the record label, how they stayed going, and just for a band to be around for 30-something years and still do it, still have the same love for the music, still have the respect for the fans, it's an endearing story. Doggy Dog, John Connor, Dave Navarro, both like legitimate, real um, guys. Original lineup. I'm really excited about this one. I hope you guys check it out, especially the young guys going, I don't really know anything about Doggy Dog. It's a great story, a great outset, uh, outlook. And the band is still fucking kicking. And, you know, they were one of my favorites growing up. So this is now the second time we've covered Doggy Dog and two more members knocked out of the checklist, mm-hmm. so to speak. So let's fucking go. All right, everybody. Today we have something pretty badass. Not just one, but two members of probably one of the most, I think to me, like as a kid, like Doggy Dog was one of the most powerful names in hardcore as we were all coming up. And they have a legacy that still stands to this day. In fact, you guys came out and did This Is Hardcore a couple years ago. It was fucking fantastic because there was younger kids like, I always thought that there was got like I needed to see it up front to see it. I mean, there's so many cool things that you guys have done. The legacy is there. The tracks are still there, and you guys are pumping out new shit as we go. And it's always awesome to try to not just have one member but two. So this will be interesting to see how we make this work. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. 
And um, I, I, you guys decide amongst yourself who starts, but mm-hmm. we always like to go from the beginning, from like how people grew up and what got them to p- either the interest to play the music that we would eventually talk about or like how their beginnings brought them to the music that we would be talking about. Well, first of all, Don, thanks you, for ha- you having us. No, I, I just want to say thanks for having us, and it's an honor. And since Dave and Sean asked me to be in the band, then he gets to go first. Uh, there it is. All right. Well, I'm sure that John and I have a lot of similar things uh, that were influential to us, and we've we've talked about them, of course, over the years. But for me, uh, I didn't. My parents did not play music. Neither one was into music. They didn't purchase records and play them at home and they didn't play musical instruments at all. So I definitely didn't get my music from my parents, Um, but we did have a turntable. And uh, I remember the earliest records in my house were Barry Manilow and um, probably Billy Joel. I would say okay. were the two like records or or music that actually was in my household. I didn't buy those, but they were there. So I was hearing that. But for me as a kid, the first band that I act- absolutely went crazy over was Kiss. Um, and when I saw, you know, the guys in the makeup on TV, like that's all I cared about was Kiss. So I, I kind of was attracted to heavy metal from an early age, I can remember being, you know, six or seven years old and being totally into kiss and going to record stores and then seeing meatloaf bad out of hell record. And, you know, not knowing what it sounded like, but just knowing that cover was incredible. I got to have that. And then of course, seeing like iron maiden albums with their kind of Eddie horror imagery, those were always what I was attracted to. So I really have to say, I was really a heavy metal kid. Um, but I also was hearing a lot of new wave at the time, like that late 70s, early 80s, uh, new wave sound, the cars, especially. And uh, yeah, Gary Newman, Gary Newman in cars yeah, and uh, yeah. ELO and even the early Joe Jackson and, you know, Blue Oyster Cult and like whatever was happening at the time. I was just yeah. ACDC even like I was hearing so much of you know, music from different directions. Uh, But it wasn't coming from my parents. It was all coming from me as a kid, like hearing it on the outside somehow. So, uh, you know, I started, I bought my first record in 1977. And, you know, since then I started collecting records and, and, you know, music and, and loving it. So that, that was my earliest like musical a Black Sabbath, I would put in there too. At an early age, I really got into them and the Ozzy solo records. Those were hugely influential. So, uh, John, what about you? Um, for me, my experience, you know, Dave and I grew up 10, 12 miles away from each other. Sean Kilkenny and I just grew up, uh, well, we met as teenagers, but our, our experiences were pretty similar because Sean and my parents are both immigrants from Ireland in my case from him his his mom is Scottish and his dad's Irish but for me the music that I first remember in my life was music from uh Irish sessions or things like that as kids my parents since they were some of the first ones or only ones in some cases to leave their family we would go to Ireland every summer, basically, from the time we were babies. 
And I remember my first connection to music being like in Ireland. And then the radio was always on over there. Not so much in my house, but you would hear some pop songs as well. So as I got a little older, I started recognizing stuff like that was rocking just a little bit harder. Like, um, well, well, Bay City Rollers with Saturday Night, and then there was like Elton John had the bitches back, and it was like, you know, had that guitar riff kind of running through it, and I was like, okay, this is like also the new wave stuff, um, you know, Don't You Want Me Baby, Human League, and stuff like that. Certain songs you would like just catch yourself, or I would catch myself singing, or they would stick in my brain. Um and then it was like, like David said, I got turned on to Kiss. Like that was the thing that kind of blew my young mind, 10, 11 years old, hearing ACDC uh, also, you know, had some power, had some energy. But for me, really what stuck to me was uh, I was delivering newspapers as a kid, like, I don't know, I was probably 12 years old or 11 years old or something. And it was a Sunday morning and I had a Walkman. I was listening to the radio. So I must've been into like music already by then, but I heard Black Sabbath paranoid and the riff and Ozzy singing. It was like something calling me from outer space. And I just knew I wanted more of that. And that's kind of when I started diving into like, who is this band? What am I hearing? And by then Ozzy was of course solo. So then it was time, like, I guess maybe around the time speak of the devil was coming out. Same thing as Dave. I'd go, I'd go into Flipside records and Closter and just look at records. Cause I couldn't buy them. We did have a turntable in our house, but I, I couldn't afford any records. I didn't have money for it or what money I had. I wasn't putting towards a record, but seeing Ozzy with the uh, jelly dripping out of his mouth, looking <laughs> like flesh and everything. I was just like, yo, like this is, this is me. I, I identify with this yeah. animal. Yeah. We, <laughs> and, we both uh, love that extreme imagery, I guess, on yes, album covers yes. back then. It was very attractive to the, the rebel and us, you know? And it, and it was all fantasy because you didn't know really what was behind the cover. You no. could see pictures of an artist and not understand what what motivated that person. You know, there's so much information now, but back then it was so much mystery, and it was a a beautiful time. That was those are the records. You guys are older than me, but those are the records that sat on my floor. Well, it was my mother and father's collection. My mom was pretty young, and so seeing something like Ozzy Osbourne stuck with me, and then. Um, just thinking about Black Black Sabbath, if they had played any other track before Paranoid came out and took over, I think it would have been a much different connection because there's so many people who would eventually find like hardcore and punk that Paranoid, the way that that whole entire song was just driven by that, it was so fucking powerful and uh, heavy. You would think that some of the people that started some of the first early hardcore bands were like pure punkers, but if you ask people like Ralphie from the Mob. They'd be like, man, I was in the kiss. That's what got me into all this, yeah. you know. Like, so it's awesome to hear that kiss because I know you guys are North Jersey guys. It seems like the kiss. I mistakenly I thought like the Ramones would have been a more powerful band, but it seems like mm. it was the imagery, the iconography of these bands that really drove drove everybody into wanting to do this stuff. Now, when you said um, about uh, the new wave, I always found it interesting because um, people like Tesco from um, Meat Man he had an early zine where he would just like track everything 
the new wave then was, and uh, Nancy Brill said on a podcast, the new wave was seen in in some ways. Like some of these bands were like directly connected to punk rock, but would you even feel that that was punk rock at the time, or you guys weren't even cognizant of what punk rock mm-hmm. was then? I I definitely felt like some of the new wave that that was coming out there and i still listen to it like probably on spotify my most listens are like playlists of 80s new wave and and like uh old punk and stuff but you know i definitely felt uh that the that new wave and especially listen back now is connected to goth music it's like some yep. dark stuff some some synth pop and synth wave you know that you hear now you hear direct sounds like from from back then so like i don't think that music was it was so huge on mtv and stuff that got really you know popular but uh you know now it actually sounds way better like john said gary newman if you listen to gary newman's solo records they are dark great records that you know definitely are related to punk and and then you know of course now i'm starting to learn more like than ever like now i'm getting more into like joy division than i've ever been in my life and it's like a band like that it's like where you know i didn't understand them then you know it took me till now before i even got it so there was so many influences going on that yeah you didn't even know what it was you were just drawn to it you know i would hear sounds on a radio and go you know ask what is that and then i would go to a store and i would look for that name in the bins you know and that's how i found out about music so you know it's just timing if we had been born in a different decade we'd be talking about something else but that's that's you know that late 70s early 80s is where i started coming into consciousness about music and really you know i was pretty pretty aware of what was coming out and and i i i have to say like i i i was pretty well schooled in music by the time the early 80s came around and slayer metallica and anthrax were were hitting like i was on that stuff you know i was into it because i was reading heavy metal magazines and things all the time so i kind of i knew the names of the bands you know but i was too young to go to the shows but i wasn't too young to get the albums Mm. that's exactly how i grew up i'd have so much stuff on my walls and eventually it was get to go to a couple bigger concerts and then it was like my mom like look the neighborhood's bad i'd rather you be downtown at the shows than sitting around here now john your family's your family your your parents were immigrants so were they were they aversive to the crazy stuff or they kind of more open to it or they weren't even cognizant of the stuff that you were getting into no I, i i was like probably about sixth grade is when I really like started getting into music. That's when I like, I got the paranoid single uh, for my birthday. Somebody in my family, maybe my parents uh, or somebody got me the men at work uh, (laughs) album with who can it be now and all that stuff on it. And that was my first album that I ever had. Like that was mine, not a, not a cassette or anything like that, an album and the paranoid single, but Maybe in seventh and eighth grade, I had some classmates who were also into metal. And one of my friends, John Barbaretti, he, his dad lived in, in Manhattan or the Bronx or something. And he would go into the city on the weekends and he would come back and turn us on to bands that we couldn't access at that point. Um, just like a little deeper into metal, but not really punk stuff. I didn't get into punk until I was in high school, like almost in retrospect, like Dave said, I was well into metal, but I got into the misfits cause I saw 
uh, the Metallica guys wearing the shirts. You know, I wasn't there killing them all. But Same here. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Sex Pistols. Uh, maybe it was Anthrax cover of God Save the Queen that made me look back. And then I found Nevermind the Bollocks. And to this day, that's one of my favorite records. Like the guitar tone on that album is so vicious. And it just sounds so good for like the time that it was being recorded. You listen to other records around them. They don't sound as good as that. Does. Maybe the Ramones, you know, but the production on that album is just incredible. And uh, even though I was still way into metal, I was discovering punk. I was discovering uh, also Beastie Boys, Run DMC. And I... I went to Catholic school for two years, high school, and then, or year, year and a half, and then I transferred to my local public school, and that's where I met Sean. And because I had gotten a lot of credits in my first year and a half or two years, I was able to do work study my junior and senior year. And I had a job at the art gallery in Closter, and I was just basically like maybe cutting some cardboard, or they taught me how to cut mats. But the guys there used to listen to the new afternoon show on NYU. So I started getting exposed to like Husker Du and Einsteins and Neubauten and, you know, Kraftwerk and stuff like that. But those guys also turned me on to fear. One of the guys gave me Decline of Western Civilization and Suburbia, the VHS. And then I showed that to all my friends. And then all of a sudden we were into DI and fear and uh, the germs and circle jerks, you know, it was all there. And we're like, holy shit, like, it's, it's incredible. Um, so that was kind of my path. I, I found punk kind of by circling back to it. But I also had some older people that I didn't hang out with, but that I work with. And they turned me on to a lot of stuff. Like we were also listening to Howard Stern. At that time, he was on like from three to five or something like that. And I remember just like being a first one of the first people around that were listening to Stern and, and listening to what his hijinks and what all that was. And uh, it was pretty, pretty mind blowing for a like 15, 16 year old kid. Yeah, we were, we had Stern on and my friends were a little older. And if you mm. look at it, it's such a weird juxtaposition because now Howard Stern is like prominently placed in the zeitgeist. But you know, there was a time when, even though he was on the radio shows, he was kind of adversaries, kind of like, you know, he kind of had his own punk, not in the musical sense, but he was a very agitator. And he did things Absolutely. to get, he did things to get people excited and do things differently. And obviously where he's at now is much different, but it, it obviously is an influence, especially for that entire generation of people that were finding this kind of things. Now, oh, it was a button pusher. Also, just not to forget, many people don't know this, but 17 years ago, Howard Stern talked about Doggy Dog for like a good 10 minutes on the air. Oh, go in there. Let me know about it. I actually, I didn't actually know that he, he talked about it. So, it's awesome. For a short time, we had a guitar player who was the son of Scott the Engineer. Oh, shit. Yeah, Matt Salem. So he played uh, guitar for a short time in Doggy Dog. And when he was in the band, his father brought our music to Howard Stern and said, this is the band my son's in. And Howard Stern did like a trash or smash or trash, like playing tracks and going, you know, this sucks or this is OK. And then he eventually was like, oh, I like this. This is pretty good. Tell your son good luck or whatever. But it was an honor just to hear Howard Stern talk about Doggy Dog. I mean, it was amazing. 
I, I'm gonna have to Google and and do some YouTube, and that's fucking awesome. Yeah, I can and, tell and you. Yeah, that was, was, was 2006. Yeah, that's a big time for me, and it's also just like a, another little bump that you guys will get. Um, you guys are all basically from within a county or so, right, in North Jersey, right? So, uh, who who uh, um who wants to go first on what your actual first, be it a giant concert or like some of the smaller club stuff? What, who was going to the shows? What were the first live things you were really seeing? Our first show was a toga party in my basement. No, no, not you're not the band, but not the, like, oh. you, you personally, like, oh, you my, like when you go from listening to a record to like, oh, all right, cool. My we're first gonna, show was Adam in the Adam Ant in nineteen eighty two. Oh shit! They, Where was that Adam at? Ant, Adam Ant had just put out the Goody Two Shoes solo record. And I was a huge Adam and the Ants fan. There's one band that was new wave and very close to punk, you know, yeah. very similar. And I was obsessed with Adam and the Ants. So in 82, I, I saw Adam Ant playing at the uh, um, Capitol Theater in Passaic. And I made my mother take me and my friends and we dressed up with with paint on our face. And we went to see Adam Ant. So I, I loved it. It was awesome. I still have my ticket stub today. How about you, John? I know you, you may have went to Ireland and seen some, like, obviously, yeah. like some. Well, I mean, it's important. I mean, um, I went to a lot hey, of Irish. <laughs> I, I wish, know. I wish I'd seen, uh, seen the Lizzie. But, uh, hey, one of the black people I saw in Ireland was a gentleman playing bass in a club in Galway back in, like, you know, the early 80s. So maybe. Maybe it was Uncle Phil back then or, or late 70s, but uh, nah, it definitely wasn't then, Lizzie. For me, um, the first real memory I have seen live music was in the town that I grew up in, like on Labor Day or Fourth of July, one of those, you know, American holidays. They, there was a band shelter there and they let, let a rock band play. And it was like high school kids that were probably 16 or 17. I remember one of... Uh, kind of a friend of a friend's brother was playing guitar bass in one of the bands and they were just like playing cream and I remember them playing sympathy for the devil because that's the first time I heard that song and I was like this song is dope what the hell is this and that woo, woo, yeah. woo, woo, all that stuff and just seeing live music but also it wasn't like something inaccessible it was like hey these people like I know them kind of, or, you know, a friend of a friend does, or somebody's like big sister is dating that guy. So it was like, it, it was almost accessible right away. And then I saw, saw another band, at like a battle of the bands, I think when I, when I was a freshman and it ended up being a buddy of mine a couple of years later, but I didn't know them at all, but it was the same thing. They were like, they were right around my age, maybe a little bit older, but they were playing like Rat Child and like Motley Crue and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, they're playing the music that I want to play. So I had this like incredible like shot of energy and confidence just by seeing people my own age do it. But like the first like concert ticket that I had and went to with just my friends was the uh Twisted Sister, when they were popping off with, like, we're not going to take it and all that, like, the Stay Hungry album. And they had Rat and Lita Ford, and that's, like, what right when Rat was breaking. It was at the pier in New York City. They they used to hold on the, uh, on the west side of the city, they used to hold concerts down where, like, the ice rink and all that, the skateboard park and everything is now. They used to hold concerts down there on, on a 
man-made pier, I guess. And uh, saw that Twisted Sister was incredible. Um, just the entire experience was mind blowing. And I was basically hooked, hooked for life on live music after like those pretty much three experiences. Dee Snyder is a huge fan of Death Before Dishonor. And he actually records in Connecticut where Hapri went with Zeus. So nice. he's like now in the, in today's time, getting hit to like what's like hip in hardcore now it's like surreal um dave because uh you are a the instrumentist unless john you have played an instrument how did you actually pick up your instrument for the first ukulele (laughs) john's a great ukulele player uh my my i started like in in grade school messing around with different instruments so i grew up with a piano in my house even though no one played it was there so i always was banging on the keys since uh, i was a kid i tried trumpet i tried drums uh kind of all over the place and in nine i guess when i was 12 uh my neighbor two houses away greg uh was a drummer and his brother was a guitar player and they kind of said hey you really if you played bass we could have a little band so I was like, oh, that would be great. I'd love to be in a band. Let's try it. So I, I was kind of asked to play bass out of necessity. It wasn't something I was even thinking about playing. But the next day, I don't know how, but my mom asked around and somebody loaned her a bass and she came home with it from school and she gave it to me. I ran to the next door neighbors and we started jamming Iron Maiden, Judas Priest and, you know, all of the classic rock and metal songs so i was kind of off and running uh in a band type situation starting around 12 and and i never stopped after that i was playing in all the high school bands and then by the time i was 15 is when i was playing like cover songs in and we were playing in a club in uh hillsdale new jersey the china club and that was 1985 and that's where i first ran into john so that was where the first connection between us, we were in the same club, both of us playing in cover bands, different cover bands, but basically being in the same place. So our musical path brought us to the China Club for the first time to meet. Now, there was a big group of your friends because you guys uh, would eventually link up with Dan and that whole entire North Jersey scene. I mean, even in my time, if you were going up to North Jersey, you ended up, it's a kind of a congealed conglomeration of little towns. So we would go up to the studio ones and then you would end up, you know, like every Thursday later on, we would be somewhere in North Jersey at a show. And it kind of felt like everybody was always a part of it. So you guys kind of eventually would link up and just be a part of like a big group of friends that would go around and see all these kind of like beginning shows. And am I wrong in thinking that it was centered around Mucky Pup or eventually would be your friend group was kind of like based around hanging at Murky Cup and then a Mucky Pup and them kind of shows at that time in the, um, in the eighties in New Jersey. Well, it started out with multiple bands. Um, but first things first, man, I want to correct you. Uh, I know you sing too. And the voice is an instrument, bro. The voice is definitely an instrument. <laughs> you, okay? you, are, you are a talented individual. I, <laughs> I fake it till I make it, brother. But I'm sorry for saying you're, you're still singing. You're still vocalizing. <laughs> That's an instrument. And you're using it as you choose. Okay, brother? Did you, have a, did you ever do anything so, formal? Did you ever learn anything formal? Absolutely. Uh, oh, at, when, I got my, 
when I got my start, I was just basically a knucklehead and I was hanging out with some people that were trying to start a band and a drummer and a guitar player asked me to sing. They said, hey, we don't have a singer. You know all the words. We hear you singing along with this stuff uh, in the car, in the bedroom, whatever, where we're hanging out and uh, try it out. So as soon as I started, I took to it. Uh, I'm a middle child, you know what I mean? So I'm constantly looking for attention or whatever. It's just just that vibe. But uh, I liked it. I like being on the mic. I like being hanging out with those guys, too. That was like, hey, we just uh, we had a friendship and a kin kinship through the music and our love of that metal music that we were covering. So it, it was a fun time. But there was a band that was older and more advanced called Hades. And Hades were signed and they got, uh, you know, they, they toured eventually. But Alan Tecchio, the singer, lived in my town. And my very good friend Nat's sister was either dating Alan or uh, had dated him and knew him and, and was a friend of his or something. But, you know, Alan was accessible. So I could ask the best singer around, hey, what do you do to sing? You know, what are you supposed to do? And, you know, I can't hit those high notes. How do you hit the high notes and everything? So he mentored me a little bit. At the time, I was, you know, 15-year-old punk knucklehead smoking cigarettes, you know, just trying to explore. And he was like, don't smoke. So I quit smoking. And he put me on to an old lady who taught opera in uh, a couple of towns away. And I took lessons. And I even did a, a, a recital. My sister, my eldest sister, and my cousin Pat, who was who was visiting us from Ireland that summer, they came and saw saw me sing poorly. I didn't really get the technique at the time. I didn't understand it. Flash forward to the early '90s, right around the time we're getting signed and we're doing shows with Life of Agony all the time, and I'm watching Keith at at the time uh, sing like a monster, and it's this little person belting it out. And he's partying with us and stuff and no problem. So I'm losing my voice every every Friday and Saturday. I do the show Friday, drink a 40, smoke a blunt. I got no voice on Saturday. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? What are you doing right? And he sent me to this guy, Don Lawrence in New York City, who taught everybody that that wanted to sing right or had a vocal problem anywhere close to New York. Uh, Lady Gaga thanked, thanked him when she won her first Grammy. But... You know, when I was going to him in the mid 90s, uh, all the guys in Biohazard uh, that sang were going. Uh, I got Dave and Scott from my band to go. Um, yeah, any of the Roadrunner bands, Ray Capital went there. Um, you name it, Liz Fair, I think Walter, uh, when, when he had vocal trouble or something, went and saw Don. So that's where I learned the proper technique. And Dave can tell you, to this day, I still do my vocal scales before every show. Uh, it's still the same file. It used to be a cassette in the 90s, uh, but now I have like an MP3 of it. And it's just a discipline that I got into. It saved my voice. Um, you know, I rarely lose my voice. Um, I might go through some rough patches here and there, but because of that training and technique, um, I've really been able to sing. And the in-air monitors, too. I know like I have a real basic setup. Um, it doesn't cost a lot, but it's really done a lot for uh, the longevity as far as singing goes. Yeah, those are actually starting to finally come into play in the smaller clubs of the younger hardcore bands, especially the ones uh, Scal Cat yeah. Cat from Scal recently just shipped over to Inner Ear. She just played here last week, and it's really hard when you're playing yeah. in small clubs 
and the monitor wedges are fucked yeah. up. You need to actually be able to hear yourself. Um, dude, yeah. I, I, I look for this, this Don Lawrence guy. I, I look forward to, I got a bunch of people that are going to come on the show and be like, Hey, what's up with you and Don Lawrence now? This is great. <laughs> I mean, it is important. It is important for people to understand that too. I, um, yeah. I know I, I I'm lucky, I guess, in some regard that I never, I never drank or smoked on tour or anything of that kind of stuff. But uh, I know sleep always fucks voices up. I know just when we would go to Europe yeah. and the smoky clubs would fuck things up. But um, yeah, dehydration thank you for, is a thank huge you for the. Uh, I truly do appreciate the lesson in that because I think that's something that I, I probably should have took some more heat on. Usually we have singers who are like I don't know shit about what to do. So I appreciate you pointing that out, John. No, I'm serious. Yeah, I, I no worries, like, man. Uh, no, I, I like to, I like to learn to more, man. Every day. And I learn from my peers. I always pick up things at festivals, talking to guys like Derek Green or uh, Lou from Sick of It All, you know, that screams his head off five, six nights a week. I'm like, how are you doing it? And, uh, you know, the secrets are to be shared. Uh, you, were, you were asking about uh, our community in the 80s. Uh, before I went off on my vocal tangent there, but uh, yeah, Monkey Pup was at at it, but Hades and Dan Lorenzo was kind of one of one of the kingpins and kind of the head that that brought our North scene, North Jersey scene together. Um, there was definitely those bands. We were also lucky because in North Jersey there was a club on Sunday nights that normally would sell alcohol. And it was all ages on Sundays. Shows would probably start around six o'clock so people could go to school the next day and everything. And not only could you see some great live music, but you could also participate. If you had a band, you know, you, you gave a demo or or somehow you booked a show with uh, Pete Tertia, who was booking over there. I can't believe that I remember it, but uh, but I do. And uh yeah, that's how you got in. And I remember seeing Dave play in 1985, and we were looking for a bass player for our little band. Uh, you had that one a little bit wrong. We didn't play the same night, but I saw you play. And then later on, we met on when my band got a chance to play. But we we were, we were wanted to steal Dave. We are like, he's the best part of the band. I wanted to be in your band because <laughs> I was playing good songs, but I was playing traditional heavy metal, and you were playing the more progressive thrash. And yeah. I was totally like DRI and and SOD and you were doing that stuff I'm like that's what I want to do I want to be in that band but I right. have my and it's like not as much fun but that that night you guys I believe opened up for Mucky Pup uh okay. but they were called Predator I believe yeah. I'm not yep. mistaken uh it was right before they changed the name to Mucky Pup before their first album came out and you know they had seen me play as well. And, I, you know, I was just digging that whole scene because I, I was into that same music and I was kind of trapped in this like heavy metal cover band that I liked, but I, I it wasn't what I was into musically listening to at the time. So when, you know, two years later, I get a call, Mucky Pup is looking for a bass player. You want to try out? And I'm like, shit, that's, this is it. This is what I wanted. And I got the audition. I got in the band right then and there. And you and I ended up reconnecting because you were already friends with the guys at Mucky Pup. And they had a little party to say, all right, Dave's the new bass player party. You're there. Sean's there. Steve Trujillo, all the people. So, like, that's where the crew, Mucky Pup already had a little crew. I joined that crew. And then the crew got bigger and bigger. But then when we formed yeah. Doggy 
dog, we had the same group of people, but then that even got bigger. So we had this, you're right, this kind of big posse that followed us around uh, during those years. And that's why when we were a demo band, we would play a club and there'd be a hundred people on a demo band. And the promoters of these shows were kind of surprised. How are you guys drawing so many people? We don't have a lot of bands that bring consistently bring in people. And it was really just the loyalty of our friends and the lure of partying with us and drinking our beer and everything. So we, we, we got a lot of people to be part of our scene very quickly. Well, yeah, I noticed part of it too. Sorry, sorry, Joe, go ahead. I was saying, I noticed everything that's written about the earliest of the band shows, your, your specific band, Doggy Dog, that it was parties or other places. And um, that rang true with what Zach from Bulldoze had said about like early shows or some of the earlier North Jersey bands with the same thing. Like it wasn't so much just that they had younger crowd, but it seems like the entire North Jersey scene, if there wasn't a club, there was a backyard or somewhere or someone's yeah. house. And and you don't hear that too much now. So that's a really cool, I, I almost like an advantage because you're not sitting there up on stage, nervous. You're at a party with your friends you yeah. know, it's kind of like almost like it's not it's it's you're still performing, but the 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 weight is not as heavy to be on you. It's casual. All the bands were friends too. Like we we met the guys. Uh, we met a lot of bands playing Pipeline often. You know, yeah. and in in the time between like when Dave joined Mucky Pup, I had already quit singing in bands, and I was into skateboarding. Sean and I were skating a lot. And skateboarding is honestly what helped really expand the doggy dog name early and how, like Dave mentioned, we had people, a lot of people, a hundred people or more coming to a, to a club and nobody, it was just off a word of mouth, but the skate scene around North Jersey was pretty uh, insular. And we, we all kind of learned about each other's spots and we shared it because we knew there wasn't that much, you know, it wasn't like, okay, this is our ramp or whatever. Like if it, back in those days, if you found something as a skater and you proved you could show up and hang or at least try, then people would give you a shot. And that helped really springboard the band in the early days for sure between the music scene and the skateboard scene. Now, actually, I, I knew that you guys were attached to, not birdhouse was a doghouse or one of them something like that like there was a logo that it was inspired and in. i know that you guys were featured quite a few times on skate tapes like videotapes i would see you guys the songs but i actually uh yep. going back to the pipeline stuff we used to go to the pipeline and would be thursday night hardcore shows Every, i think probably mm -hmm. two times a month i would have to sleep at trenton because i would miss the train and then we wouldn't be able oh, to get the seat. Like literally, like I, I remember going to that thing. But um, for you guys uh, emerging from that skate culture, does that lie also where the also we later we'll talk about like the the different influences because at the same time we're talking Red Hot Chili Peppers and uh, BC Boys is either on tour or about the tour. You know, like yeah. all this stuff that kind of resonates with the the funk thing that was like temporarily like coming up with uh you know a uh, little bit of murphy's law definitely heavy with red hot chili peppers and then also that was big with even the early bouncing soul stuff in new jersey all the way down in new brunswick because like this college funk thing the scott stuff was always big in that area yeah. and then also hip-hop kind of emerged 
not as the victor because they started getting in the majors sooner, but I felt like the white kids from college were more excited about hip hop. I think than some of the other stuff, like it kind of like became a divergent thing. Like you're either straight headbanger, but it seems like you guys had this awesome mix of the heavy metal background, the new wave stuff, all these different things. And I, I now it makes sense of skateboarding added to that whole kind of amalgamation of ideas and influences. You can and- throw it. Rap and reggae in there too. When when we got together for the first time and and said, you know, let's create a sound. You know, w- we didn't have a plan. That was just like, what what can each individual person bring to the table? And when you put uh, the the guys who are in the band in a room, you know, you everybody has different influences, slightly different and would bring those to the table. And so, you you know, our early songs were just like anything goes. Like we, we, we wanted to be hardcore, but John kind of wanted to approach it with a more rap style delivery. And we were like, yeah, that sounds good with the music, you know? So it wasn't like, let's, let's do a rap band. No, we just did what we could do. John hadn't gone to his singing lessons yet. So he, that's how he felt comfortable delivering the lines and Dan Nastasi, when he joined Doggy Dog, he brought his kind of style of playing guitar and his style of of lyrics yeah. into the mix. So they, it just it kept evolving into something else that it wasn't, but it, it grew and grew and grew. By the time we were ready to record the Allboro Kings record, we had kind of found our sound at that point. Even the Warren EP was still a, a abandoned growth but i think by all borough kings like we had found the formula that was starting to work for us at least with no fronts and who's the king um and then and then that was the kind of blueprint we worked off of in for the future but again it wasn't a plan it was even the saxophone wasn't a plan it was just something that happened because we had a friend who played saxophone and we said let's try it you know you don't you don't know until you try so we were definitely influenced by murphy's law we were influenced by beastie boys red hot chili peppers all of those bands i remember saying one thing i'm not going to do in this band is play slap bass because everybody was yeah everybody was at that time i remember (laughs) suicidal just kind of was doing the switch a little bit there Yeah, yeah yeah so for me i i never saw a dot a dog eat dog demo but Warrant hit and the zine, the hardcore zines were covering it because a lot of shows were happening in New Jersey, even just by word, just like by word fame of people from up north. Like there was big shows in Middlesex County College. Some of the bands were playing further south. So we got hip to you guys. And it was, it was exactly, it was like almost transformative because it was easy to call everybody hardcore if you were at the show. Like obviously, this band's a hardcore band. They're playing here. But yeah. there was something special when all Burroughs King hit. And I know um, you guys, I, I've said this on a million podcasts. Um, you guys played at the uh, JC Dobbs in Philadelphia on the Mad Ball Downset tour. And mm-hmm. I saw two songs of you and Kev one knocked me into a concussion. Oh. I did get back into the show. My friends found me across the street eating pizza and they're like, what are you doing? And I had no concept of where, like, you know, like you get hit hard. So apparently I, I went outside and got pizza and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, the fucking show, like Madball is going to go. <laughs> uh-huh. But it seems like there was two things going on because I was heavy in the heavy, heavy metal for a long time, especially at that point. I was still getting my feet wet in a hardcore. I'd only seen my like first hardcore show just a couple months before that. 
you guys are really getting heavy press because of the push that you got from Roadrunner. And someone said one of the guys in Biohazard just happened to pass a tape along, and that's what that's all it took. Like, hey, check my boys out, and then that was it. Is that how it really went down? Pretty much. Wow. They were going to Europe on tour, and Sean or Dave, maybe me, I forget, one of us gave them six demo tapes, and one of them went to Hank Hacker, who was the boss of Roadrunner Germany. He listened to the tape and liked it and said uh, he called the Roadrunner New York office and they got Howie Abrams to come out to Bond Street and see us play. And yeah, we were playing Bond Street pretty regularly then and selling it out. Uh, We had done like a string of shows with Shift. And I think that was probably like right around the middle of that time. Like we were getting along good with them and their crowd. So we were trying to get booked together. And Howie came out and was like, I love the energy. Everything, you know, feels great about this band. He's like, I don't know about the saxophone, but everything else I feel good about. The dog eat dog energy was so fucking high. And and, and it's a weird thing to say this because... And, and even the, that show is a point like you had the local hard response with a huge crowd of just their locals, but dog eat dog made it hard for, and it's crazy. Like that was mad balls. First time playing in Philly. It was like dog eat dog had a fucking wild set. And I know that you had just this vibe that wasn't like, am I going to get my head cracked open today? Because people had fun during your shows. It wasn't just the dancing. It wasn't just yeah. the songs made people go off, but there was, I try to tell people like the band was the, the riffs are hard, the sing alongs, you know, it's like it has yeah. this amazing mix, especially in that point where you got to pick like you like the band, like, oh, yeah, these guys are like the new band coming up. But there was just something different. And, and it goes back to that party idea. Like the doggy dog was like, oh, we're bringing a fucking party. But it's surreal to me that you guys just kind of happened to, hey, hey, maybe you guys can, uh, you know, show this tape to someone. And it, it was like a um, good for you to do that, but the fort, like you know, like the the luck of the fortune was great because it really elevated you guys, man. And I mean, at that time, metal was shifting greatly. I would say like that Sepultura Chaos AD record came out and kind of showed some of the hair metal dudes like, hey, you got to play heavier, <laughs> you know, like you got to play heavier, you got to do different things. But what yeah. came from that? What came from that Roadrunner era? And the blue great merch stuff. I mean, the guys were everywhere. I mean, whether it was in a hardcore zine or a rock metal, uh, like a really rock or a metal magazine, Dog and Dog was in all that advertisement. And I say this to the younger people who are listening, like this wasn't just like, oh, there's some New Jersey hardcore. No, this was like a band placed in a legitimate platform. You know, like you guys were placed right up there, you know? Well, I tell a lot of people who ask, how did it all happen? And the honest truth is a lot of it is just good luck and good timing. And, you know, Billy was a good friend. He did what he did because he liked us as people and he liked the band and he wanted to help, you know, and it's like, he's just a great guy. And, you know, he didn't know that Roadrunner would sign us. He just did what he, he just did what, what he wanted to do, which was pass the tape on enough said, you know, he didn't necessarily follow up or do anything, but he did, he set that in motion and, you know, that's part of our story. And we're extremely grateful uh, to have a friend like that, that, that did that. But again, it's like just good timing. Like if he had handed it to a different label, maybe it wouldn't have happened. You know what I mean? If it had been six months, 
earlier, maybe it wouldn't happen. You just don't know. It's all about just, you know, the right time, right place, good friends, good, good, you know, positive vibes. If, back our way. Good if it was Monty, if it was Monty Connor or Mike Gitter that had went down to the show instead of Howie Abrams, we probably never even would have been signed. And Howie played a major role in helping to translate what the band was about and place the band properly within Roadrunner's structure for us. Nobody at Roadrunner was excited about Allboro Kings until we went over and crushed it on the Biohazard tour in Europe. And our videos were hitting all the specialty shows in uh, MTV UK, MTV Germany, everything like, you know, we, we seized the opportunity by being with, with a, really the hottest band in Europe, at least that to my knowledge was Biohazard at that time. And they had the power of Warner Brothers behind them uh, for the first time. And they, they were on top of the world. And we we surfed that that wake behind them and were able to grab our own momentum. But I will say that once we did have momentum, that Roadrunner did use their resources and a guy like Howie um, made sure that our message when it got out there, even in metal magazines or places that we might not necessarily belong, um, that we were represented in the in the right way, and that that our ads were were good, or we were in an ad made with typo and uh, life of agony or something. So we're like, okay, cool. Like we we could fit in with these bands. We play with them often um, on festivals and things like that. But without Howie there. And it showed when Howie left after play games, we had no advocate at the label anymore. And uh, our management and the label were incapable of working together and it, it, it fell apart. But uh, Howie's sense of hardcore and hip hop was the perfect A&R man for our band. Like he came up with the title or he had seen a friend of ours who wrote ABK on, on a graphic that we still use. Uh, it's a cartoon of me. Um, and we call it the screaming mic. I'm, I'm like yelling into the mic and then the mic is screaming too. And on the sweatshirt, it said ABK and how he's like, Oh, I, I saw ABK. You should call your album that. I was like, what does ABK mean? He said all borough Kings. I was like, that's a pretty good idea. And nobody had a better idea. So we used it. I actually never knew that story, but that's fucking fantastic. At that time, I was obsessed with graffiti. Not my, my mother wrote graffiti in the seventies. Philadelphia was Ooh. covered in it. I lived right on the first L train stop, so riding to school, I got to see everything on the L top, and just seeing the letters and all that. It, it like the the the, the entire the imagery hit me. Well, I was reading magazines like way back, and I used to collect them for all time. There was always talk about you guys touring, and then you guys would reference the band brains a lot. Like there was some kind of meeting and impact so how did you guys link with them and like was there really like this like mentorship or were you guys just being kind like it seems interesting because i know that that was like right around they were doing like might have been right after they're doing the god is love tour or something or, you know like but i know it that was rise oh it was rise i know at some yeah. point you guys kind of linked and yeah, you guys gave so much praise to the bad brains and i was kind of like holy shit like i didn't you know like i didn't think that they would mess with these newer bands. So what was the what was the combination of you guys like, and what did you learn from them? Well, uh, I'll start it out. We were incredibly lucky to have the first tour that we ever did. Uh, our EP came out in 1993, 
nobody cared around the world except for warrants because they had called their record dog's dog yeah and we were pissed about that so we called our ep warrants just to be like okay cool now we're even um but no one cared really aside from maybe you know some of some of the the hardcore scene on the east coast you know that knew about the band but it was not an international uh pop off in any way but what we did get out of it was an opportunity to tour in the united kingdom for about 10 days and we were direct support to the goats and bad brains oh and the, the goats, goats from philly yeah oh that's fucking yeah. awesome i've seen them a the lot goat. as a kid man yeah me too uh you know we had saw them and played with them prior to the tour so we were really excited and you know imagine getting like your heroes as your first tour and then on top of it you know, it was Mackie on drums and Israel singing. So it wasn't the Jesus. HR and Earl experience, but it was Doc and Daryl were just very kind. You know, they made us feel welcome. If we had any questions, they broke it down. They weren't like hiding in the dressing room away from us. Like if we happen to pass the door in the hall, they'd be like, yo, yo, come in, you know, say what's up. Or like, I just remember anytime they spoke, like we were all just like, reverence you know we we shut up and uh you know one of the best nights ever for me on stage was we had uh you know towards the end of the tour we were doing a uh a gig and the and the bad brains like did this instrumental thing and they would have uh i think you know maybe somebody from the goats got up on bass but they had the mcs from the goats and daryl would would rap and do some like jamaican chanting and that's why we put him on who's the king because i had seen him do it in england a few times but that night they invited me and dougie uh who, who rapped with us and played saxophone on stage and i got to like freestyle with the bad reins playing behind me and i was like oh my god my mind was blown it was like the biggest thing ever and that's such a blessing dave, that's such a blessing yeah dave like fishbone headlined the brixton academy show and then Tell them about Europe, Dave, when we went to Germany and what bands we played with, please. Just to, just to follow up on John, I mean, Bad Brains were, you know, and still are um, in my absolute top favorite bands of all time, hardcore or not. I just, they're very influential. When I was in Mucky Pup, we had played with Bad Brains a few times. We had played yeah. with Ace Bolo a few times. So, like, you know, we were, we were amongst them. But like touring was a different story. And like John said, when when we were in the studio making All Borough Kings and Daryl Jennifer walks into the studio and he's singing on your record, it, it's like you can't comprehend that at that level back then. Like nowadays, we've done so many incredible things. I say, all right, I believe it. But back then, it, it seemed like a dream. And uh, when we finished the Bad Brains tour, part of that tour our very first tour we got on uh, uh got in our van and we drove to holland and we linked up with seven seconds and big drill car next so how was seven seconds were they like in a um kevin's such an awesome fucking guy how was he he it was he i mean so now he's so talented he he, he does so much cool shit now too i forgot oh. what record it was but in 93 they were you know he was definitely still looking young and doing well and the the band was rocking i mean it was a dream i love seven seconds and i i loved big drill card uh so yeah. much so just to be on that bill 
again, we were just like, we're fans of music. So we're, we're just so lucky that we get to play with these bands, get to hear them, get to be friendly with them, hang out with them every night. I think that was only like a few shows um, I, as yeah. far as our, and, but that was our first tour. Then we went to Germany and we played with uh, a German metal band called Fleischmann. Probably most people don't know them now, but, you know, they were doing well in the early 90s. And, you know, we came back from that tour and we're just like, all right, great tour. You know, just now get into the studio and make another record. And that, that was kind of, you know, we kind of put that one behind us and moved forward. Uh, but looking back, it was a great first tour you could have. I know a lot of bands you know, really, really rough it on their first tour or play to nobody. And we were lucky to play with Bad Brains and even Fishbone on our very first tour. See, now, one of the things I was hoping to get to, but it's a, like a weird, like in the weeds conversation. The time, you know, uh, Youth Today, Gorilla Biscuits, Agnostic Front, those guys were going over and doing like the uh, the punk, the punk, like a squat shows. And yet I would see the, because I, at magazines, you see like Biohazard and you see these tour posters, but the German bands were like, I, 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 you know, I have German family and I can't read the words. How was it being a bunch of guys from, I mean, obviously John, you've been to Ireland, but like traveling as a band at a time when, you know, the wall just kind of fallen. Every country had its own weird currency, there had to be some major, and you guys were you guys even in your twenties yet when you did that first tour? Yes, yes, your early twenties. Yeah. You know, like it, it had to be a culture shock in itself, and then on top of it, to be representing and a label like that, you know, it's there had to be a lot on your shoulders. Well, don't forget, John. Uh, we we had already been in Europe touring with Mucky Pop, and John was on tour with us during. Oh, that so time. John, you would come out for some of them. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I came out twice. The last two or two two tours that Dave and Sean did with them. And I was basically there the night in Berlin when they had a big blow up and kind of Dave and Sean were like, all right, that's the end of it. But like the wall was literally coming down at that point. Yeah. We were there and we went to the wall and you could rent a hammer for uh, 50 Fennigs, 50 cents of a Deutschmark and the, for, for a couple of minutes and chip your own piece of the wall away and then get the hammer back. So we have five pieces of the Berlin Wall somewhere yeah. in my archive of, of stuff. Yeah, me too. So when we started touring in 93, we actually had some experience already doing it. So we didn't go in completely green. We, we went in knowing what to expect, kind of, hey, you know, we're going to go in at a pretty low level, but you know, I remember the first night we got to Europe on our first tour, all of us were sleeping on the floors in the same room of a, we got one room in a hotel that we could stay in. Been uh, there, been there, yeah. know that it's fun. <laughs> yeah. So we, we definitely you know know what it's like to rough it. We didn't just like walk into like, you know, a, a, a double decker tour bus on our first tour. That was the second tour. <laughs> Dude, I, I just, it just seems so much different than obviously today. I mean, we worked with MAD quite a few times, but uh, just seeing some of the, like if you read some of the they, tour they journals. They booked us. Yeah. Oh, they're fucking they, they fantastic. They booked that. Yeah. yeah. So we, we played the Rose Club. I keep trying to get Mark to come on, but not only the time difference, but it's just like he we only talk via Facebook Messenger and he'll be like, 
I'll come on whenever you want. But then it's like, well, let's go. Like if I got to figure <laughs> out a way to get him to get him to do it. Um, it's also he a blessing. Would be a great guest. It has to be. A, I, I look at everything that I've done with shows and I have to hope that you guys feel the same way as just being like working class East Coast folks. We're not really supposed to leave our area. You know, some people never leave their town. Some people, you know, like it, it, this music gives you this exposure and this access to stuff that so many people don't. That's a blessing. And I wonder how quickly you guys understood that. Because for me, first time I left and went far, I was like, I don't think anyone in my family's ever been out here, you know, like. Yeah, we were just a bunch of like by in the Mucky Pup days, we were that's when we were like 1920 unsupervised in Europe. Just, you know, the just go to Europe and figure it out on tour. You know, we had we had no supervision whatsoever. And, you know, it was pretty wild. And, you know, I was I even like in the mid 90s when we played Dynamo in front of 100,000 people and then we won an MTV award. It was surreal, but it didn't really kick in how blessed we were. I think all that blessing for me is in hindsight when you look back and you're like, Oh my God, like we really, like I felt good about it. And we were really nice to everybody and gracious to everybody and thankful to everybody for the, for everything we did. Uh, but I look back now as I get older and you really, really see how blessed we were. I mean, to, to be able to go to Europe and play and make records and, and make these videos and do the things we did. Yeah, it's it it now it looks more like a blessing than ever. So I'm extremely grateful every day for the adventure that John and I have been on now for 33 years and including the mucky years, we're talking 35 years we've been chilling. And if you talk about when we first met at the China Club, you know, we're talking uh, almost 40 years now. So it's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, you know, that our friendship has kind of stayed strong and, and gotten us through all this and and the other guys in the band too it's it's not just us but it, it takes a team to get through this but like when you work together the you know i and and these miracles little miracles keep happening and and the longevity uh that's a blessing for sure there's this video of uh tupac playing a fest and the joke is like remember the time that tupac played the entire world because the fest is so big and I remember the first time I saw videos of Dynamo and this Dynamo 95 thing. And this is pre-internet. People had video, some VHS of this. Yeah. You guys walked on that stage. Did you know? Did you, did you, did anybody give you any warning? Like, did you guys know going up that morning? Like, Hey, when we get up on this stage, it's going to look like half the earth is in front of us. Kind of because you could see it filling up as the day was going on. I think Madball was pretty early. I can't remember if Downset played or not there. They might have just been with us that day or maybe Downset played early. But you could see it getting bigger and bigger. But probably two weeks or 10 days or something before the festival, we were at the Roadrunner offices in uh, Holland and the international product manager Stefan uh, Koster was there and I don't know if you were in the room Dave but like we we're just sitting there kind of having a chat and he was like hey you know this, this Dynamo festival is like it's a pretty big deal man it's going to be a big festival and you know he said something along the lines like something like this could make or break your career and I was like yeah right like one show is going to make or break a career la 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 but anyway he said do you have like anything planned or 
are you going to do anything special? And I said, no, like we kind of treat every show like a club, a festival or whatever. And bear in mind, we really hadn't played any big festivals then. I think maybe a couple of open airs, if that. But uh, anyhow, I told them I'd seen this band in Rhode Island at Club Babyhead open up for the Boston's one time. It was just like a surf punk band. And the lead singer hopped on uh, a gu- guitar case, or maybe it was even a surfboard, um, and got up in the crowd in a, in a small club with like, you know, a few hundred people or 400 people or something. So I said to him, like, that was in the back of my mind. And I just pulled that out. I was like, if you get me a surfboard with no skeg, I- I'll ride on, on top of the people with it. And he was like, okay. And sure enough, like, you know, we got come out of our bus and played in Paris the night before. And, uh, you know, I wake up and there's the surfboard. I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll get to that. We'll see. And then when I saw the size of the crowd and everything, I was like, okay, I'm doing this. Like, <laughs> it's going to be a moment. But the first time I tried to do it, the crowd was surging so much that the uh, the security was like, not now. Like, it's not a good time. And then the next time I was like, hey, can I come out? Nobody said no. So I went out um, and kind of kind of made a little history there with that uh the, the world's biggest crowd surf i guess that was a good one i remember right before we were going on they were setting up the stage and i was in the backstage the entire time or kind of hanging out with the other bands and stuff so i really wasn't looking at the crowd the whole time and i had just been drinking everything me and sean said let's take a peek and we opened the curtain and we look at how many people are standing there i swear to god i threw up right then <laughs> wow i mean I yeah up. I have to say, he laughed his ass off. And I guess I just had been drinking so much beer beforehand that, you know, it may not have been my nerves. But when I saw that crowd, it just I threw up. I was it was it was so funny. And that started my chain of throwing up before gigs that lasted a while. I don't know how that came about, but that was the first one. I guess my body was like like that. You're not getting on a stage like that, jumping up and down for an hour with a belly full of beer. So No, no fucking way. Yeah. Well, uh, Case Case Wessels, the uh, the owner of Roadrunner, after the show, I was walking down the ramp off of the stage, and uh, I I ran into Case, and he hugged me, and I guess Howie was walking with me or something. He started laughing, and he's like, "Case just hugged you." I was like, "Yes." Yeah, so he's like, "He doesn't hug people." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I I think uh, he he realized that that we sold him a, a lot of records that day and uh, yeah that I was the recipient of of his uh, thanks on that one. Now this is more stuff, so someone listening can have just a gauge of what the effect of is. If you were not hip, hip to hardcore, one day you would just sit there and see Beavis and Butthead talking about this band, or you would be sitting there and. You would hear um like the MTV blurbs about you know um coming up, you know, we have Doggy Dog, they've been working with uh hip hop legend Rizza, and, and you're just like I, there was a minute where it felt like you guys had for me just been able to branch and bridge out to so many different people and everybody got the vibe of what it was. Like, and again, it goes back to like Doggy Dog still is like the ultimate party band. Like no one's going home bummed out watching you guys, but it really did seed into so many things. I mean, you guys had Paris Mayho out with you, which I think was great. I know. And um, yeah. Paris may had Paris uh, mentioned it a little bit to me. He's like, 
you know, I played in doggy dog for a little bit. I was like, yeah, of course, fucking Patrick. You know, it, it makes sense because he's so fucking. That would be the guy if you didn't have somebody to pull in. But like you guys, that was Sean. That was all Sean Kilkenny. He was obsessed with the Chromags. And sorry to interrupt, but Dan, Dan no. Stasi, uh, Dan Stasi made the album with us and basically told us, "Hey, I'm getting married, starting a family, and my my father has a job here for me, a company." to learn how to run and that's my path good luck and we knew that we wanted two guitars on the album uh sorry on on the tour and sean was like i'm gonna get paris like somehow he had a connection or maybe he had met him or they were already friends uh but he's like i'm gonna reach out and see if paris can do it of course like chrome eggs legend uh nobody nobody was saying no but i think maybe the first time i met paris was like the first show yeah, same here. I don't even remember rehearsing with him. Nah, that's Paris. He he had the thing already locked in, right? <laughs> He's fucking so uh, good. We definitely rehearsed with him. And I, I was such a huge Chromax fan as well that, you know, it was just an honor to do that tour. But he was such close friends with the Biohazard guys that yeah. him to be like, hey, come on tour with Doggy Dog and you get to hang out with your friends in Biohazard every day too was a pretty good draw for him to do it. And Drew Stone was there on that tour every night as well. So I'm sure if it was Doggy Dog in their first European tour in a van, he probably wouldn't have been as excited about it. No, I but just think it's... he did shows with us after that tour in a van, yeah. if you remember a few yeah. more. Okay. That was cool. I mean, we 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 didn't have enough material. Our first album wasn't uh, wasn't long enough even for our 45 minute set or whatever we ended up playing street justice as well every night and people love that you know we were a new band a lot of people hadn't even heard our album yet so by coming out with one of the guys in the chromags and then doing a decent version of street justice it didn't hurt our you know hardcore credibility let's say no i just i just think that you guys have had this lending ability where so many people wanted to work with you also i had dan on the show and he told me this like yeah everything was going great dog gate was about to do this great thing and i said no i i, I gotta i gotta get married i gotta do it. and i was like yeah. mind blown and he also said they got paris to do it but what my point was getting to is like doggy dog is like the, the kappa bearer at the time everybody got along you guys met people everyone loved being around you and it's fucking fantastic because i hear a lot of stories about the grind and the grudge and the you know there's a lot of people that don't have such a, you guys have an awesome outlook and it feels like that outlook brought people gravitated people towards you guys because of the way you guys treated all this. I would say definitely a good positive attitude and friendly vibe goes a long way uh, in this business. And, you know, we, we made connections back then, you know, that have come back and, to, to help us in the future, because, you know, when you make a good connection, you make friends with somebody, maybe there's nothing they can offer you then. But later in their lives, they they could, they're now a promoter of a show that can say, I love Doggy Dog. I've always been friends with you. And now I want to pay you uh, to play this sh big show or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So you you those connections are are incredible. And. Also, even though I hate to say it, when you're in a band that has some success and you're on a decent label and they have some money to put behind you, you know, you have a little bit more money for a bigger party. 
Yeah. And okay. We were able to say, hey, we really want to work with the RZA. That doesn't come free. The RZA didn't just say, I want to party with you. You know, you. Yeah. You know, okay. After- I get it. I get it. Yeah. So a lot of times people just do guests on your album, whatever. But we were in a position where we actually could reach out. RZA could have said no to us. I don't like your music. I don't. But he didn't. He liked what we were doing. He was totally cool and down with it. And we were able to. We had to pay him, of course. But uh, we got the opportunity to to write a song with that guy and hang out for a whole day with him. It was a pretty amazing experience. But, you know, when you are in a band that, and you do have a label backing you, you have more possibilities. Uh, yeah that you wouldn't have if you absolutely have no money and no, no push. I think also from my perspective was, is that because you guys had been touching on different sounds, I think people were very interested in this band, you know, like from a, from a viewer point, like there was people that I don't even like in high school that were rocking doggy dog stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck is how these motherfuckers know? Like how these motherfuckers get getting our shit. Like, you know, like open. Always. And then, I, well, like I said before, that those skate tapes and like you guys, I mean, we would sit back and watch it and you hear no fronts or something. You're like, how the fuck did they get on this too? Like it, there was, yeah. you guys had a, like a contingent effect where so many people got hip to you guys. It was fucking fantastic. We had a flexibility too that not many bands could say, hey, uh, our last tour was with biohazard and downset and our next tour is with no doubt in 311 you know what i mean it, it's it's all rock music right but very different energies and and maybe fan bases as well and you know one summer we did a tour with clutch and tad you know what i mean oh, shit, like, like down or slow <laughs> you guys are coming up like all right everybody that was totally. fucking and, and, a great juxtaposition of the two crowds Oh yeah, and, and I love Tad, and we were great friends with Clutch as well. Like we we knew them from basically the time they came out, and Jack Flanagan was already involved with them. So, dude. yeah, of course, Jack Jack was our road manager in in the nineties when we were popping off and playing the biggest biggest uh, shows and festivals from probably ninety six ninety seven uh, through ninety nine. Jack was on the road with us, so uh, you know. We we had we had great mentors that showed us the right way to treat people and said, guys, look, you're yeah, you're on the rise, you're hot shit this year or this this month, but maybe next month or next year, two years from now, you're not gonna be. So that's just the case. So treat people right, be a good person, and people are gonna do the same for you. You know, we were inspired by bands like Murph's Law. I wanna say the ultimate party band to me, that's Jimmy. I still, you know, I, I had a uh a show with him, a side project that I work on called Secret Society. We opened up for Murphy's Law uh, January DC, and it's the best. I I love it. He still kills it. And anybody from a kid to a grandma can have fun at a Murphy's Law show, and that's a big inspiration for us. And like Fishbone, you know, they came out there and they had some messages in their music, but they had fun when they played. They made sure everybody around them had fun and, and they looked like fun. The Beastie Boys, some of, you know, their earlier shows, it was, it was a party. It was a gathering. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't come from terrible backgrounds. You know what I mean? We were never going to be the heaviest metal band or the hardest hardcore band. So instead we just decided to be ourselves and be unapologetic about that. And and that vibe and that energy 
has worked for us uh, for decades now. Even even in our downtimes, the people that come around, they they've always been like, "Yo, you guys, you guys are still having fun. You still put your energy into your music, and it and it shows that you're still friends. And that's the nicest thing people can say about it." That's such a good thing that you touched on Jimmy G because the older guys will tell you that are, they're like, you ask some of the old guys, they'll say Jimmy G to this day was the best front man in New York hardcore. He had, he's still to this day, even in his later days, people, I mean, I saw him at the Thompson square park, 2021. I asked someone and they're like, this is the old Jimmy, like 6,000 kids, beers are throwing everywhere. But it's awesome that you touched on that, John, because that does, that does make a lot of sense that you guys, that's where the vibes are coming from. I just yeah. feel like, I feel like you guys brought so much different things to the table that it was easier for people to, you know, if you were straight death metal or threat, it's harder to get that. I mean, you guys did have Dio want a song, but I mean, like in general, you guys being open to the sounds and having these different, um, more open ideas, I think it really lended for people to collab and want to work with you. We never wanted to limit ourselves. You know, if there was an opportunity put in front of us, if it felt right, we were going to go for it. The Jam Master J stuff. I mean, and they were, Roadrunner was remixing a single because they wanted to extend the record. They wanted to try another chance at trying to have a hit. Now, a lot of bands might not go for that and say, oh, I don't know, you know, a single. I don't know if we're comfortable with that, but we didn't say no. We were like, let's let's try it. What What's the harm in getting in the studio with a legend, someone who we respect and a guy that basically is one of the forefathers of an entire genre. And it ended up working out well for us. We weren't afraid of success or failure. What was some of the worst advice or anything given to you guys post ABK working on play games? Like there had to be people that kind of came to you guys and like, this is what you guys have to do. Or did you guys have creativity in where you wanted to go now that you had success in your hands? I'll I'll say once we finished the ABK tour and then the the tours that followed, Roadrunner was like, "All right, start writing the next record." And we didn't have any songs left over from the past. We had recorded everything, so we had to start basically at fresh again for the Play Games record. And you know, we had wrote two songs uh, in in. By 95, we had already wrote two new songs and we played them at Dynamo. I believe we played both of them, uh, Numb and Bulletproof. And then uh, when that tour, when they said, "Okay, guys, go, you know, make your record. I mean, we were pretty much left alone at the beginning. We were demoing uh, songs on our own. We we worked with Tom Soares up at uh, in Rhode Island and demoed with him uh we had demoed in a few different places like we really john, john travis yeah exactly yep. so we, we weren't no nobody was really pressuring us if anybody was really getting involved in what we were doing it was howie abrams who was yeah. doing that as a you know as a friend and a and a you know a co-worker but not anybody saying hey this is the sound you have to go he was just saying let me give you some advice or why don't we try this line or, or anything. It was all very helpful advice. Yeah. How he, amazing he would be in the studio with us working, but at no time was there ever pressure from the label to say, do a song that sounds like this or go in this direction. They were pretty much like leaving us alone. And when we said, Hey, we want to work with Dio, they were like, okay, 
we'll make it happen. If we want to work with the RZA, okay, we'll make it happen. And through Howie and the label, they they made our granted our wishes basically. But like nobody yeah. said do this or do that. So we we are very fortunate that we had a hit record and we didn't face that kind of pressure from a label to to go in a direction we didn't want to. The only time we ever really had that was maybe when the they wanted to sponsor the tour and Bravo was the the uh, big magazine, teeny magazine in in Germany, especially, and they wanted a tour uh, to sponsor us instead of Kerrang or Metal Hammer, which would be the normal choice at the time. And we agreed to that. We weren't pressured to do it. We could have said no, but we we sure. looked at it and and it was a publication that had a million readers a week, a million wow. copies. They wanted Rip. to sponsor. So Holy it, shit. Yeah, it was much bigger than those metal magazines, yeah. but you know that that may not have been the best decision at you know at looking back. But it was uh, well, it alienated some of some of our crowd uh, considerably just by having that association with Bravo. But and Roadrunner had never had a band um, in that space before in that in that magazine, but even though we were getting backlash and shit for, for being the Bravo boys two years later, biohazards in it, Wu-Tang's in it. Uh, next thing Eminem is in it, you know, in a way we, we were the first of the party and we had to take the slings and arrows for it, but we didn't mind that there was nowhere else to go in, in the underground. Like, like they said, we didn't have any pressure to create a certain song or a style or a bad idea. The, the, the worst ideas for the play games album came from us ourselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, and, and that's the way it's been with all of our music. We're very lucky, even especially the latest record. Um, the label didn't hear ed- anything until it was almost finished. Like we've, we've never had anybody tell us what to do or what direction to follow. And we've always been able to, use a democratic process to figure out what we want to do. And, you know, when, it, when Sean was with us, it was, you know, Sean, Dave, myself, Brandon, whoever was in the band had a chance to speak their opinion. And if there, there was an even vote, then maybe the manager or somebody could break the tie. But, you know, when we started the band, we, Dave, it was only three of us really was the nucleus. And then we found a drummer and Dan came later, but our idea was we weren't going to, put any limitations on what we did musically. Uh, we weren't going to put any limitations on promotion. We would speak to anybody, fanzine, to MTV. It didn't matter to us what level, if they wanted to promote us, we were happy to talk to them. And uh, yeah, we, we are sticking with that. And some of the things we got backlash for, but I personally wouldn't have changed any of the decisions. For me, I wanted to ask you if, looking back, when Roadrunner started dumping the hardcore stuff out, did you guys think that that would affect you guys? Because I know I remember just went from being like Mayball Shelter, this band, that band, this band, and then little by little it was like boom, 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 boom. And then I I don't have the inner workings, but I've we've had different people throughout the different podcasts say, Hey, this happened and this happened from their perspective. What was your perspective towards the end of the roadrunner days for you guys? We were, we were recording the amped record, uh, which came out on roadrunner. Yeah. Uh, 
but basically halfway came out on Roadrunner. That was our, that was kind of our last resort. We were left alone in the studio again to make this record. And we, we were funded by Roadrunner, but basically they, they didn't seem to have anybody that really cared about what was going on during this making of this record. We were basically just doing it because we got, we got our engineer and studio paid for by the label. And then, you know, they finally somebody came out and checked out what we were doing and and we handed in this record we just worked 10 months recording and we had uh, a video for the for the first single and we went on tour and we played you know some shows but not not a massive tour smaller smaller level tours and then roadrunner was basically like all right make another record now and we felt what are you talking about we just made a record like we just handed you a record and uh we realized that there's just nobody left at the label that's got our back anymore there's no support for doggy dog like it seems like every anyone at the label is like no they're your problem they're your problem like and it, it just that's the way it felt at the end and if you you know we still had multiple records left on our contract so it's like what do you do we don't want to be on this label because nobody's got our back but we're obligated to make more records for a label that doesn't even really want us so huh. you know we had to basically fight to get off the label um and that's that's what happened in in 2000 and uh we eventually were able to get off the label at a very high price for us um but uh and then of course roadrunner put out a, a greatest hits record immediately just to give us a kick in our ass out the door Jesus. I know I heard a lot of stories like that. That sucks. Yeah, I mean, we we also spearheaded the kind of hey, you don't understand this band. You don't know how to work this band in America. We had opportunities at the end of the play game cycle to do a few things. One of them was to make a step right in video, the song we did with the RZA. They wanted to include it in um, what was it? Some X Games package that was coming out, or the song was included in the X Game package, but Roadrunner didn't want to pay for the RZA video. And they just didn't have the foresight to see that Wu Tang Forever was going to be the biggest record uh, coming out that year. And it was, but they didn't understand it. And at that point, uh, the band and our management said, we've got, we've got to get something else going. So we had a great lawyer who was actually the same lawyer as RZA. That's how we ended up getting hooked up with him. That was the, the catalyst behind the, the collaboration to begin with. But yeah, we just, we just couldn't be with Roadrunner anymore. We uh, fired our manager during the process of making the Amped record. And we had interest from a, a, a very well-known and I guess high-profile manager in Germany. And we decided since that's where Roadrunner was putting our record out that we would go with this manager. But the first thing he did was look at our contract and said, you have to get off this label. You'll never make any money here. Um, and they don't understand you anyway. And we agreed. Um, and that put us in limbo for three years. So like you were saying, you know, Five minutes ago, we had all this energy and momentum that seemed like everybody wanted to be around us. And in a five-year period, we were basically wiped off the face of music 
through business and management mishaps and uh, yeah, some bad luck as well. Um, yeah. All the while, you know, now you have, yeah, there were some, some hardcore bands getting signed to, to Roadrunner. And, you know, in, in my mind, I was like, good luck to those guys. You know, I, w- I wish you well in a nicer ride than we had, but also you had corn Kid Rock, Limp Bizkit, you know, the birth of a new metal was coming out. And in a way, it felt pretty lonely to see like a genre that maybe you had you had a part in creating, warping into something different, but still like, okay, all these bands are blowing up. And like, we felt like we could get arrested. It was like, hmm, this is uh, this is going to be an interesting time for us. And and it was. The weird thing fun- what did you say? Because the amalgamation, all those metalcore—not uh, the metalcore, they call it new metal—all that stuff was coming into the space. I would assume something like Doggy Dog, because of the versatility, would have been able to. Sorry for cutting you off, Dave, but when I think about that stuff, I just—I I saw a lot of goofy fucking bands at that time, and we were we were touring, and I'd see some kids. I'm like, why the fuck are they listening to this shit? It was some of the more god awful, not real metal, but called new metal stuff. And I, and I, I, I'm really glad that you pointed out that you were kind of contractually strangled because you guys had a real heavy momentum. Sorry for cutting you off, Dave, but like, I was just assuming, you know, there was either different ideas in the band, like personality in the band slowed things down, but to hear that it was like the label side really fucking sucks because you guys could have went head to head with any of those bands that were making it at that at, at that point, in my perspective. Yeah, well, it's label. And management fucked us. Basically, we had a nice uh, back Double to back. Whammy. Two, whammy. two managers and a bad label that eats up years trying to solve problems like that. And uh, yeah, but what I was saying was that it's funny now because over the the last, I guess, bunch of years, there's been a bunch of books about new metal published, and it's funny that we're mentioned in them now. We're 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 considered a new metal band by by certain authors or or journalists not and not the decibel book i don't know i just i know uh, I have so there's a book called new no oh, that's so bad <laughs> so <laughs> kind of funny because i've never considered us part of a new metal ever like we never thought of ourselves as new metal we we never even tuned our cars down so you know, I think that's a requirement of being new metal is you have to tune down, but, and, and John never screamed and made, you know, gruffy voices or anything. So like, I just don't see why people even would place us in that. I think we're more of like by our mixing of genres and our use of rap style vocals and heavier guitars kind of was just prior to that, you know, maybe like John said, we maybe we had a little bit of influence. But, you know, when we when Limp Biscuit came out and did a song with Method Man, it was only two years later after the Doggy Dog Rizza. And it's like that that really cut deep because that could have been us basically doing the same thing. But we we weren't given that opportunity. It was a missed opportunity. And then Limp Biscuit kind of just did the same collaboration essentially that we were going to do and they hit it so that that was a little tough one but we ended up doing like eight shows with Limp Biscuit uh, a couple of years ago when was it 2018 and it yeah. turned out to be an incredible great experience for us we got along really well we mixed with them really well and and kind of I've been harboring this kind of I don't like Limp Biscuit 
for some reason for years, but now I, I'm so at peace with it. And I, I love those guys. And I was just really glad that the universe finally like brought us together and kind of showed that like these guys are okay. They didn't do anything on purpose to hurt doggy dog in any way. So I, 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 I like it. It was all made great for, for me at least now. In this story, where, where does the morale and the band come from to keep you guys together? knowing that they had so many things going for you, the people that you were working with were like hamstringing you. Like what was the, was it really just driven by the music and still the love of doing this? So many bands would have fucking just stamped their feet and go, fuck this. I'm out of here. It, it just knowing this, I know it's gotta be a hard thing you guys talk about, but just knowing that you guys could persevere and push through is fucking tremendous because so many people would just said, fuck this man. I'm a, you guys would have uh, called up uh, our friend uh, Dan and said, Hey, you got a job over there. You want to print some t-shirts like <laughs> guys fucking push through. Can you tell me how, how that kind of worked out? And then what you guys Sean, got from that? Sean and Scott both worked for Dan over the years. So that's great. The truth of the matter is even, you know, even when Alboro Kings was doing well and even play games like, you know, yeah, maybe we, we, we weren't exactly working, I guess, at that time, maybe 95 to 99 ish. Uh, the band was considerably like, you know, our main income, but not long after that, like when, when the record came out in 99 and it was basically, you know, stillborn for lack of a better term with, with the label and, and no way to promote it or anything, you know, we kind of hunkered down and by 2001, right when nine 11 hit, we were supposed to go over to Europe and we had this, uh, they were doing this rock and rap thing with a but like ice tea was on it and i think like maybe crazy town or i i can't remember exactly what bands were on it but it was in berlin and it was going to be like a lot of german rappers and some american rappers and some rock bands that have affiliations to rap music and we were getting ready to fly over and then 9 11 happened it was like nope the show's not happening and no shows are happening for a while and i got a job um, I don't know, Dave and Sean probably found jobs like we all started working, but nobody ever said, this is it. I'm done. It was like every summer the phone rang and there was some festival to do and we were linking some festivals together. So we just kept our name alive and, you know, we hooked up through our management at the time. He screwed us out of the label deal, but he did get us a booking agent. And they were able to put us on over in Europe for three weeks at a time, maybe once or twice a year. So in conjunction with working full time, we all had the flexibility that we could jump out and do doggy dog gigs uh, whenever we wanted or whenever it made sense for us to do so. But we were not talking about writing anything really. It was just we got rid of the saxophone if we were doing shows. It was the four of us, and that's it. We cut down our production uh, as much as we could so you know we could afford still to go over because we didn't want to pass up opportunities to play, but it certainly wasn't paying all the bills anymore, that's for sure. Uh, 2002 and 2003 were among the lowest years of this band. Like We basically played probably 
10 shows per year on those two years. Like we were, or, or less. I, I have the thing. But 2003 was one show. It, no, that was 2008. 2003, it was about seven oh. or eight shows. But yeah, okay. the okay. 2008 okay. year, but we said we're not playing this year. And we did the one show. But yeah, we basically went through a low period. I call it the dark times of the band. That was the lowest period where any band would have said, let's give up. There's no reason to go on. But because we stayed and we waited, we ended up getting a new manager, new booking agent, and we were able to get back in the studio and start writing and create another record. And we ended up making the walk with me record yeah. in 2005 came out in 2006. And if you look at our tour dates for 2006, I mean, we played literally almost a hundred shows in 2006. So we were, we were back. It just, it, we crawled out of the mud and crawled back up and we made it happen. Well, that was nuclear blast too. And I mean, those guys have little by little picked up, where some of the other European labels dropped off, be it hardcore or metal, and, and they really do have a lot locally for their region. They're really fucking strong. So it makes sense that they would put they would put their ass behind you guys and then you guys could actually do some more things. But they didn't. It was actually a shadow deal. Like oh, we shit. were never we were never signed to nuclear blast. Um our manager, booking agent uh, was the guy who shopped our record around and some of the big labels in Germany were interested in us, but they had these incredibly uh, restricted deals where they want your, your uh, merch, your publishing, uh, the whole they, thing. They were, yeah. all, they were looking for live show money, which I had never heard before. And I think it's called a 360 deal or something nuts like that, where they want, they want the whole thing. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. And we were basically said, we would rather this record not come out than to get raped again by a label. That's not happening. So we basically rejected that and forced our manager into a position of releasing the record on our own. And he had a friend at Nuclear Blast who helped kind of, yeah, like I said, side door the album. So it it never really... It got in a few record stores. Uh, Didn't get the full know, push no, from them. That's not even, not even close. It yeah. was distributed by Nuclear Blast. So yeah. it was in their little catalog and it was in record stores. I remember seeing it in Saturn and Media Mark when it came out. I mean, it definitely got in. And if you look at the spine, it says NB on it. So there's like a Nuclear Blast on the spine it was like you said though if you look it says wanted records so it's oh like, uh, you know what all the footnotes for whole discography comes under nuclear blast for that record yeah mm. they they it, the, the truth is nuclear blast did distribute the record uh but it was done under like a subdivision label for nuclear yeah, blast. subsidiary i get it yeah yeah so that's how it worked out and like john said it, we were just like we're not giving we're not going to walk right back into another label situation where we get fucked immediately like so no that's not happening and and the label that we're on now you know understood that and and when we signed with them you know they they handed us a contract that was absolutely fair and and in, in in our favor so you know that's all we were ever asking for is is a fair deal and and to just follow up your question about what it was like and what what it got uh what got us through that um you know i think david outlined what it's like but i think what got it us through that time was that 
we are actual friends, Sean, Dave, and I. We would get together for weddings or funerals if somebody died uh, or just, you know, Christmas time. I would be up from the D.C. area and we'd all get together and make a point of having a beer or meeting up at a show or something like that. So there there are ties to each other beyond what this band has done as as tied together as we all are by dog to dog it's more than that and it, it always will be even when talking about those dark times like sean left the band while we were recording in 2005 and you know it took a little while and there were some sour feelings but in less than a year you know hatchets were buried and we're like yo i love you man and our friendship means a lot more than this band and i'm happy that we had our time in this band together and we definitely need to make make a point of looking out for each other and staying friends uh regardless of what's happened what what is the drive for you guys throughout this entire i mean from that point forward it's really the love of the band love of the performing love of what you guys do your fans must still love you and i know and this fucked up thing is there's bands who have that that still be like Ah, uh, things are going well. Fuck this! I'm gonna be. In, I'm gonna go back. You guys have something special that you still see the value in doing the band. It's the audience reaction. A lot of it when you're playing and you see how happy you make people, it becomes addictive. You know, you want to continue to put a smile on people's faces, and and you know those are good good feelings, good rush. And, you know, the phone just never stopped ringing, like John said. So like, if there wasn't an opportunity, we may have been forced into giving up. But when the phone keeps ringing, hey, there's opportunities for you. There's more show offers. It's like, we keep the same work ethic we always had, which was, hey, when someone wants us to play, if we can make it work, we'll play. And we've never given up on that. So like, the phone ringing and the demand for the band has been there and nobody was really saying like make another record they were just saying come play who's the king and no fronts basically like we, we just want to yeah. keep hearing songs and then we realized man we've been doing this so long we got Alboro king's anniversary 20 years yeah it's like okay well let's go on tour and and share this again people there's a demand for it and you know that that's what's kept us going it wasn't really like a label or any fans really being like if you don't have a new record it's over it's just you know kind of going on autopilot for a while but then eventually when you know we said you know we we want to keep this going well we need new product in order to put the gas in the tank and make sure this thing keeps going and then we we recorded the ep for uh brand new breed and that was the first time working with our new guitar player roger as as a, a writing partner in the band not just a, a player and uh, that kind of started everything in motion towards where we are now, which is, you know, writing with a new new band member and, and having that be a success and knowing we can do this. We can write good songs again. And uh, then we kind of shifted into overdrive and put it put it our, you know, our efforts into a full length record. What came first, getting the label or writing the record? How did you link with Metalville to get this record off the ground? We had, uh, in 2015, when the band was turning 25 years old, we were saying like, okay, we, we'd like to do something to mark this occasion. And the best thing that a band can do is write a song. Or It started out with the idea for a song, but around the same time, 
was when we were integrating Roger as a full member of the band. We said, hey, we don't want you to be a hired gun. You're, you're doing great work with us. And he said, well, if we're going to, if I'm going to be part of this band, I want it to be a band that can also move forward and not just play from from the past. And it was the right timing where we just we we had an urge to write a song or two. And Roger was kind of laying a little bit of a demand at our feet and saying, hey, let's go forward. I mean, for me, I really enjoy the aspect of the family. You know, even if it's a small family, the band, a couple of crew members, you know, traveling, it's like a, a, a unit or a team, you know, where it's like it's an us against the world mentality. Um, and, and I just love that. I love to travel as well. I always have and I always will, whether it's with the band or not. But one of the things that I noticed maybe a little bit before 2015 was like we were getting unique reactions at festivals and at club shows like we were able to get an elevated response from different crowds unexpectedly and i was like wow there we have something here that's special it, our chemistry it's unique to our band or whatever but we're doing something and the energy that we had playing that old music wasn't like hey we're here you know, buy a t-shirt, help us pay our bill or something. We were just like, hey, we're here to have fun. You know what I mean? Like, you can tell we're not here for the money. It's 150 people in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we're barely, we're barely breaking even, but, but there's not a sour look on anybody's face. We're all just having the time of our lives, enjoying this thing that we created 20 years ago and somehow people are still fucking with it. Uh, I'm here for that. And that energy where we're like, we're not trying to sell you anything. We don't have a record. We just want to play music and have fun tonight. And people are like, I gravitate towards that. I like that. And that chemistry led to us creating some new music. And one of the things that I, I, I kind of recognized in, in doing press now for the new album is like, you know, we're, we were in a unique position because we were still able to have a touring band. But we also had the security of a normal, let's say, nine to five job. And we weren't relying on doggy dog to pay our bills. Uh, so there wasn't a financial pressure to bend to anything. It's just, hey, when we want to do this, does it make sense financially? Cool, we'll do it. But there was it, there was no reason like, oh, I got a, you know, a mortgage payment or I'm trying to do this or that, you know, and I need the money. We did it when when we wanted to and how we wanted to. And there's a freedom to that that I think bands that are on the record and tour cycle don't always have. You know, there, there's a pressure to get a product done. This record took us almost 20 years to make. You know what I mean? It literally was five years in the making. So, yes, we wanted to put something out, but it, there was no pressure from anybody other than ourselves to put the best thing we could out. And I think that is uh, a freedom that not every act has. I was actually, that's, I'm so glad you touched on it. Cause I think that that's the separation of like art and Hey, I need to put this record out for this tour cycle. Otherwise we're not going to be able to do this. And it kind of gives you the freedom from that. And I'm glad that you touched on it for you, Dave, do you feel the same way? about just in general 
just the hell he said about without having to worry about whether or not the show or is bringing income in right. is if you had the freedom to do what you want with the record, this next, this new record. A hundred percent. I mean, I was right there with John, like we're, you know, we've, we've basically, I was working full time for years and, and luckily that I was in a position where the job I had was like, okay, you can go away for a month and still have health insurance and still have a job when you come back. Like, and we found ways to make it work where, you know, the, like whether the band played or not, we're okay. We're surviving. And that took the pressure off the band as a means for survival, like John said. And then we could just be, we can enjoy it when we go out. And it's like, not a vacation, yeah. of course. It's like, hey, we can actually have fun, make a little bit of money, go home and have security. And and so I definitely was on that same thing. John and I, especially, like we've we've we were kind of simultaneously doing around the same thing. And 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 that that got us through many years, especially the years where we were kind of only part time touring and we didn't have a record like now that we have a new record like hey you know things have changed my job has changed i have a lot of freedom right now i would love to like be in a full time band and and make tons of money but that's just just not realistic at this point to think that way it's realistic to say hey we we can we can maintain what we've been doing which is take care of yourself at home be secure find a job and then you know, when you can't, when we can make it work on the road during the summer, have a job that's flexible and can let you go. And that's been working out for us. So I'm really glad to know that we, we didn't really have to sacrifice anything on our journey up to this point. I also want to know when you were writing this record, did you have any space where you weren't writing? Like, was it like because of records and the record label stuff, did you have stuff bulked up like in the writing processes that would get to this record? Where did you draw from? Like all new shit, shit that was shelf. Like how did you guys pull this stuff together knowing that there was such a gap from last LP to this one? We didn't have anything left over. So our first. It was all fresh. That's fucking awesome. Our first sessions were in from, from the EP we did. Right, we, we had a few ideas left over yeah. from the EP in 2016, and that was like the catalyst to begin. Yeah. Okay. So John's right. We there were a couple of leftover ideas floating, but but basically, uh, it was all new material. At least you know nothing like from the very old past. We didn't dig up anything from Albro Kings or play games. It was all relatively new stuff. And again, with no pressure, we found a uh, rehearsal room in Prague and. The, the rehearsal room had a restaurant and bar attached to it uh, so we could just plan ourselves there all day and and just throw ideas around. So we would we would go there for two or three days at a time, uh, sometimes more, and we would just throw ideas around in a in a room like the old days. That's how we started in the basement. Everybody working together. You know, sometimes it's not easy and people don't see the the ideas the same ways. But, you know, we were able to everybody was able to get all their ideas out and throw them on the table and whatever stuck and whatever, you know, kept coming back the next time. Like, that's what stayed. So it was a, it was a long process of writing, to be honest. I don't know. What do you think, John? We probably spent like 15 days in the in a studio writing over time. Yeah. Yeah, maybe more than that, but it was broken up like 2017 
uh, when we knew we had the the deal with Metalville and they wanted us to make a record, we started recording then and writing then, like maybe the first ideas were ready to go. But we would write songs, like Dave said, for two or, two or three days in Prague. And then we would go play some festivals or club shows for three or four days. And the new ideas that we had just come up with, a lot of times I would just write a chorus right away. And I'm like, okay, we got a chorus and we got two or three parts. Let's play that song tonight. You know, if we have a chance, like, let's just try it out and see how it feels in front of people. I would just make up, you know, freestyle lyrics or, you know, one song I was like singing REM lyrics to like, just to, just to see how it felt. Like live like, okay, like in, a, in front of a crowd, you were doing that. Yep. Dude, that's fucking fantastic. That's a yep. great way. That's a great way to feel the momentum of the material, see what people yeah. react to it. I feel like to another side, but I tell the young kids now in hardcore. Now there's a band camp website before these bands play their first show. There's a whole demo written. I'm like, play some songs. See if these songs even the kids feel them before you record them. And then you're like, by the band camp. It's like, I love the live idea of that. Because that's where you're going to see your fans and if they actually emotion connect, if it's working live. And like, it's almost like in the live comedy thing to say, like, you got to work out material. And I feel like a live, a live audience would be the best way to see if you're on track with the people yeah. that actually like your band. That's fact. That's fucking Even, awesome. The crowd reaction is important, but less important than how we feel. You know, it's like, okay, we just sat in a room you know, sipping on beer and everyone's trying not to sweat too much and, and running through the song. But it's a different thing when you're full of adrenaline and you got a crowd in front of you and they just heard, you know, who's the king. And now you're like, boom, you cut into a new song. Like, how are we playing? How, did, how does this feel? Is this change work? Is that that part that felt great going four times in the rehearsal room only feels good going two times live. So we'll augment the, the, uh, the arrangement right then and there. And, and the next night, maybe play it again differently. So not every song out of 14 got that treatment, but more than half got that treatment. I think we played every single song from that record at some point live before. This uh, album. Bar Down never got played. Zamboni never got played. Some of those. Don's got a memory, it. boy. <laughs> I've got the memory. Well, I also, uh, sorry to interrupt, Dave, but I, you know, when we were in the rehearsal room, my job, uh, I recorded everything just with voice notes on my phone. So I sifted through and filtered everything. And then I also had the opportunity to listen to stuff and be like, okay, I got an idea for this. I'll write to this. So I gave this, you know, I I gave the guys kind of the ideas that I liked the most to refine and and find maybe a B or C part for the song. So in a way, you know, I had the archive of stuff and I would just filter through it and kind of, you know, I, I like to think I saw the big picture first, but I love the fact that everybody eventually we all painted the same picture and, you know, it wasn't just my hand or Dave's hand or Roger's hand. We, we all, you know, contributed in many ways to to make this record ours. Yeah, absolutely. A big group effort. And to me, it felt like a jigsaw puzzle. And during the making of it, I could only, there were only certain pieces in place and I never knew what the next piece is going to be. Like, what what is it going to be? But we yeah. kept filling in the pieces and the album became more and more clear. But they, that was a weird process of, of all our records we've done. This was the one that I... I didn't see a clear picture of 
as soon as the like we we would go in with songs with this one we were writing and then writing five other songs that were still that were in pieces at the same time so it was a very interesting record and and it took a minute for it all to like come into a clear view for me so i uh I'm extremely happy with the results, but the journey was a little frightening in some parts. <laughs> you didn't have the box top in front of you. No, I. you had all the info. I, I, I had the puzzle box top. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> you just had pieces. <laughs> nice so one. The thought process for the length of time that the band's been around, the length of time you guys have been writing, did you guys ever get to the point with each other where you were like, we already did that or how were you bringing fresh ideas into all this? Because I mean, all the years you guys had to have tread, you know, Oh, we're back in here. We do, we want to go here. Do we want to try new stuff? Like, was there a formula like in that weird Metallica movie where they sit there and talk the argument about solos or no solos was like the argument. We don't need sax in every song. Like how did you keep uh, the songs fresh while still incorporating and keeping it doggy dog? David, um, I mean, with, there's been times, especially where I'll I've presented something, and John will say, "Hey, that you know, it sounds like old school doggy dog. Like I want to do stuff that's more new and more progressive." And I'm like, "Okay, I believe that there needs to be a balance when you're in a band that, like, you know, you you don't want to alienate." your core audience that was there with you forever, but you want to be a band that moves forward and you write new sounds and new styles. Like for us, we we're really the ones that don't want to continue to write the same music over and over. We have limited amount of time. We want to, we want to keep exploring and moving forward. And, and John was definitely pushing the hardest towards doing that. If you left it up to me, I'd probably come out with some kind of thrash album. Okay. Uh, style but you know we all have checks and balances and john says all right dave i like some of your thrash ideas and some of your old school ideas but how about these brand new style ideas that we're going to offer so we've got some songs on the new record that are you know that push the boundaries further than we've ever gone before and i was pretty resistant to it at first because i don't like change i like things to stay the same but i also understand that a band has to change and we're we're we haven't made a record in you know 17 years a full-length record we're not the same people we were 17 years ago so why should the music be the same um so this record i really believe is a great combination of old and new and uh, like I said, making it was like a little bit of a head scratcher, but with the final product, I, I'm so behind it and so happy that we were able to to push further than we've ever done. And, you know, John and Roger, especially, too, you know, those guys are really the guys who who push to push further. So I, I, I credit them. Um, but I, like I said, I'm glad that we have a balance in this band where everybody's voice can be heard and John doesn't say no to everything and, and neither do I. You guys have an idea of what you're going to do as far as the, when the, when the record comes out, are you guys going to roll it out with anything? I know you guys got videos. What, like, what do you, what is the intention with this record? Was it just to get a record complete and out? Or do you guys have touring ideas? Like what's, what's the momentum going forward? knowing that for the first time you have an LP in a long time. Like, what are you guys thinking about? Yeah. Our, our, our big priority was to make sure that we got out on the road in Europe where, where we've had our strongest fan base uh, over the decades. 
So, um, and that's where our label is based as well. So we knew that that was the, the place to start. One of the things that you have to consider when you're releasing something new is what are your expectations? You know, what, where do you think this is going to go? Um, what, what for us is success, right? So for me, the first thing was finishing the album because, you know, we went through a pandemic break and everything. And I really, you know, there was a point where I didn't know if we'd ever do a show or be, be able to get back in the studio and finish this thing. So finishing it off was number one. Um, now we're learning how to release a record 17 years later. It's a little different. The streaming Oh my God, services. the rollout is so much different. The yeah. streaming... Snoop Dogg said something like, how come I have billions of streams, but I don't have millions of dollars? <laughs> <laughs> this is like the funniest and most accurate thing. And, and it's it, a, it is. it's sad to laugh about it, but it is a bizarre thing where the access and exposure is really at a high point. Like you're going to, through social media, you're going to get so many people coming in, but previously they would go to the store, pick up the record, they would order the record. You, and yeah. it's not about income and it's not, a, it's actually more about it's this, this musical commerce from my perspective is tracks are more important than full records, yeah. you know, like in the live show is where you may get your artist to actually sell the actual, if you want to call it a product because yep. the person's going to be excited. But I mean, some of these artists and not just, and just in hardcore too, there's people like, yeah, they got that one song. It's like, no motherfucker. They got a whole record. Like, <laughs> you know, like track six is just as good as the, the one yeah. you're talking about, but the first it, track. Yeah. It, it gets lost on people. So it's a hard, it's a hard thing. It's a hard medium to manage now the digital age. Yeah. From here, we have of a singles mentality, but after releasing an EP, and the, the being of a certain age and also the demographic who's into doggy dog is not your teenagers and 20 somethings right we we've got an older demographic traditionally that can understand and i think appreciate and also demand an album you know i think for us who knows when we when we started this process we we had the mindset this may be the last opportunity to get in the studio and do anything so we have to do a proper record and that's why we made it 14 songs and we put everything into it that we had um you know what i was saying earlier about expectations you know we realize we're on a small label and we realize that the world has changed since we last released but we also know that we're a band that uh has had success in the past by by visuals and videos so that's why even though, you know, we used to have a hundred thousand dollar video budgets. Now it's uh, lucky if it's a thousand and everything shot on our iPhones, we've been making the videos ourselves basically. And that's quite all right. We're happy with that. Um, now the record is coming out October 20th and we're hitting the road a week later. We're starting a European tour. We've got Grove Street from the UK who just dropped their, uh, their debut album. And we've got Kings Never Die, Dan Astazi, yeah. and, and our boys from Jersey are on the on the tour as well. So we're hopping in in a bus and we're going around Europe for three weeks. And that's how we're launching the record. But we plan on, you know, promoting this record for a year. So up until next fall, our mentality is going to be 
Free Radicals and a little bit of All Bro Kings because that's got a 30 year anniversary coming up next year. But, you know, we didn't we don't expect to be an overnight sensation. You know, there's no way to become an MTV star anymore. Um, of course, you, you can have a viral moment or somebody can catch on to a song or a video or something. And that's great, too. But really what we want to do is spread our music the old fashioned way. And that's get out on tour, do festivals, do club shows, meet people that are interested in our music and, you know, hopefully make that direct connection. Um, Dave. Yes. Oh, I just thought you were going to jump in and I, oh. I don't want to leave you out before I jump no. in my next thought. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with everything John just said. We're, we're going on tour. We're going to do this tour and we're going to push as hard as we can. And we'll see what at the end of it, what do we got? Where are we now? Is it, is it, do we want to jump back and make another record or do we want to just continue to play until, you know, we don't want to do it? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I mean, if you guys Give survived. 15 years, guy. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys have survived the shit that you survived with the labels and the way people fucked around, I have no doubt that there's going to be, it would take a lot for you guys to stop. But I, I also think that this, the most credible thing about you guys is the level-headedness and understanding where you got your fans from the first place. You know, pre-streaming, it was the shows. You know, pre pre the first record deal it was the shows. It was the and 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 I'm I'm this is not a this is not just to help you promote the record. This is a legitimate thing. To walk into hard this is hardcore when you're one of the older bands and getting the young kids to go, dude, I can't like I they know the name, but like you guys really got people excited about your band again just by playing in front of younger hardcore kids. And it's it's an important thing to understand is that these kids are not very wise. And I say this every time I do a podcast. These kids aren't that smart. So this is why we got to go into the vernacular and a little detail so they understand these things better. But to see like kids like 19 and 20, like this band's fucking sick because they've got the streaming. They don't go back and borrow a record. They just go whatever's the names up top. And then unless some really cool right. guy tells them, so you guys won that crowd over, and I'm telling you, we've had bands go, ah, man, that crowd's hard to get. So it, it, and it's a, it's an honest thing. So knowing that the way to get this record out is the road is is honestly the most important thing, and I'm so glad that you guys are going that because when someone sees this shit live, that's where that's going to hit them. That's the emotion. That's the thing that made you guys this whole time. So I'm glad that that's it. And then just to be able to hang out with Dan on the road again, it's got to be fucking fun. He's oh, a fucking he, awesome dude. Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> up on stage and playing with us too. We've already told him, get ready to do. Uh, who's no fronts. Yeah. So it's going to be like have, being on tour with Dan again. It's just incredible uh, that 30 years later, we can reunite with our guitar player and our friends and be on the road again. And like the fact that Dan hasn't given up over these years and he's constantly made music and he's got a new hot band, you know, and it, it just, it puts a smile on my face. It warms my heart to, to see not only us doing it, but Dan's got his own story and his own parallel path with us, but we're still in the same place. And that's an incredible thing. And, and, and we we really haven't mentioned it, but you know we're starting now uh, a documentary about Doggy Dog Fuck because yeah. Fuck all yeah. the that you're talking about, all the things we're talking about, 
you know, when you condense them into one like 90 minute barrage of facts and video and and sounds and images like I, we have a lot to say. And, and now there's a director that's stepped up and, and got some backing behind him. And he's coming to Europe and he's going to start the documentary uh, on this upcoming tour. So that's you can fucking great. Yeah, depending, we have all these old videotapes that no one's ever seen. We don't even know what's on them. We've got hundreds of videos from the 90s. We never. We don't know what's on them. And this guy's going through all of them to see uh, what's going on uh, with them and incorporate footage no one's ever seen into these home videos, basically, of Dog Eat Dog making the Play Games record and, and you know, other things uh, that are going to be seen in this documentary. So that's something that we're, we're hoping you know, for a, a next year release of this documentary to tie in a little bit. No, I think that's fucking absolutely one of those moments where if you could ever get it all trapped on and then bring the old stuff back into it, it's going to tell such a great story. That's why I do the podcast in this fashion. So people get an idea who you guys are. They hear the whole story. It is fun to talk about the new record, but now people have been listening and understand like, where do we get to? Why these guys are doing this record? What makes this so bad? This band so important. Yeah. And I mean, the, the the humility and your ability just to go with it and still love this band after all that you guys have been through. And I, I don't hate that. I didn't want to bring it up, but like, you know, the guys carried on after Sean's loss, even that alone sometimes can really take the morale out of something. And I've seen bands do it go, you know, without him, it just doesn't feel, it feels like, you know, a, a, a car with just three tires on the road. We don't want to do it. it. There's so much positivity that's still rolling through you guys. And granted, I mean, yeah, you guys had people like Kev one moshing like they were gonna kill everybody at some point. I, mean, <laughs> I tell I people well, that's the thing is, is I tell when people are like, "Oh, you see Doggy Dog?" I'm like, "Yeah, they were one of the scariest bands at one point." Like, the band uh-huh. with the horns, and I'm like, "Yes, the band, yes, that band with the horns." But it was because of every that energy. But you guys weren't today. I mean, I've even said, "Get up here! I'm gonna fucking kill you! Move the fuck!" You guys were never like that. But just people were so excited for you through all these different times. And the fact that you guys still championed what you loved and still did it, whether it was for, for the love of the band or for, hey, this is great that we're getting paid money. It, it really does separate you from a lot of bands and a lot of your peers, man. And I don't know if you know that, but I, I've I've talked to people, a, a lot of different people about this shit. Sometimes when people are like, oh, well, it's not working. I guess I got to go back. It, it's great that you guys push this shit on. That, that's why we have a new song, Never Give In. And, and that's that's one of our mottos, and I stand behind it. And, and I, I try to tell people, it's easy to run away in the hard times. It's harder to, to stick through the hard times. And then the sun, eventually, the light shines if you if you tough it out. And we know that. So we learned it. And we know it's just a matter of time where, you know, okay, something is bad happening or nothing's happening. Well, guess what? The phone is going to ring one day with an offer or whatever. And if it doesn't, hey, you move on. But for us, you know, our persistence and and our never given attitude has worked for us. And it's, it's always brought us opportunities. I mean, you guys even had, you guys had a, a run schedule at Life Agony. And I remember it started and then it was like, was it COVID or something? And it kind of went away. Like there's been some, there's been some yeah. crazy ups and downs for you. And yet yeah. you guys are still pushing yeah. on, man. 
we had a great tour lined up with LOA in Europe that promoters were freaking out about shows are selling great. And they were already talking about extending it. And, you know, that got squashed by COVID as well. You know, you got, you got to roll with the punches. We have been, and, you know, we're, we're capable of good times and bad times, just like life. That's the way, that's the way it goes. But, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about the young people, um, the last show that we did, we flew to Romania and drove two and a half, three hours outside of Bucharest. And promoter who had previously booked us in 2017 or 2018, our, our one and only time there before, uh, was accompanying us to this gig. And he said, yeah, you know, it's Sunday night, so don't don't expect that much. And we didn't know what to expect, but we got there, been traveling all day, we set up. And it was very surreal playing this show because apparently they've never really had like an international band there. And we show up and we're playing like who's the king and no fronts. And if these are good times, like all of our Alboro Kings hits and nobody knows these songs because it's 80 percent is teenagers. They're just yeah. kids from that city dying to see some music. And we're playing like five, six, seven songs off the new album that are getting great reactions. So these kids have no idea what context any of this music is. And we're literally just seeing them react in real time to something they've never heard before. And it was a bit like the later 90s where it was like some girls screaming and everything. And Dave and I were laughing about it like, wow, we haven't <laughs> had that in a while, huh? Um, but at the same time, they were so appreciative and so energetic. And then there was a pocket of kids that were moshing and, you know, the security was keeping close eye on them. But they didn't yeah. do anything. The old days. Like, you know, yeah. It, it, it was just like, we, we were just like, holy crap. Like, if you stick around long enough and you got some skin in the game, you never know what's going to happen. And that's part of our attitude is like, hey, this band has been such a wild ride that the only thing to do is really stick around and find out how it ends because we don't, we really, we're not controlling it. Of course I could say tomorrow, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore, but you know, nobody's really controlling it. We're, we're managing it as a, as a group We're we're taking on what we want to do. We're trusting our guts and our instincts and anything that doesn't look right or feel right. We're leaving alone and anything that feels good or looks good. We're accepting and rolling with it. So uh, you know, who knows where it leads, but we're very excited to have something new out. Um, it's been a long time coming and we're excited to see how the world reacts to it. Now, I, would, I think actually, if you guys do one thing, great would be keep up with the social media in the, in the, in the time when you're rolling with this, so many younger people will be just algorithmically pushed towards you. It sounds crazy to say that. And like right. I, I deal with young kids who will come up to me and they'll be like, "Yo, did you ever hear this record?" And it's like the third record a band did. I'm like, "How the fuck do you know that one? Like, that was the one." And it's like, "That's the first one I heard." And I, and I remember I just said it earlier, like that was the first record. You know, like it may yeah. in this digital age, you can end up getting new fans because they just don't know, and it, it's not going to be just the all borough stuff, you know. And, and I, I think that you guys have a really good shot, especially with the live, the live aspect of your band. I really do think you guys have a really good chance of going over, like as a kid say, like going over well just on the internet, like seeing the shit. I know you guys are gonna bring it. And then I mean, 
I'd love to have you guys back here at least once. I think, yeah. you know, we have, we've had some really good successes in the, in the last couple of years with shows. Um, I'm really happy that we got to have this talk. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you guys think that we should like mention? I mean, for me, I, I, I just love the positivity. I, I knew there was stuff with Roadrunner, Runner, but I didn't realize the length of it. I, I really appreciate you guys going in depth and being transparent. I love your disposition on everything. It's like guys are smiling going, yeah, we were fucked, but you know, we're going to still push them through. It's, you don't see that. It really don't see that much. You see people with a lot of growth. We're still alive, man. You know, That's like what are you going to do? You give yourself cancer by like worrying about something from 20 years ago. Like, yeah, we made mistakes. Other people's made mistakes. Like Dave and I were talking about that with the record coming out. I'm like, listen, we're prepared for it. We're going to make mistakes. The label's going to make mistakes. Like even when Allboro Kings hit and everything went right for us, of course, we only remember the successes and the great moments, but there was a bunch of tragedy and weird moments and no fronts being spelled wrong on a cassette that was sold. Tens of thousands of these cassettes say no Froa on it or Roadrunner released a deluxe version of Allboro Kings that they completely designed by themselves, didn't consult us, and it came out and it looked like a fucking piece of shit. It was, we called it, we still call it the Green Monster. And we had this great cover with the crown that Todd James did for yeah. us and everything, and they totally ruined it and never even consulted us. So there, there was, things went wrong in the past too. It's just, it's easier and more fun to talk about your successes, but there's ups and downs on every road in life. And I'm just glad that I have friends like Dave and Brandon and Roger and our wonderful crew that's been behind us. And people like Dan Nastasi that book shows for us in America and then come and play guitar for us because our guy can't come from Switzerland. There's so many people that have helped us and help prop this band up and help this band keep going. That's all I want to say. Also, thank you to you for introducing us to This Is Hardcore and get us in there. We got to play with Eddie Leeway, who's a big inspiration to us uh, from, from the beginning. Every, you know, Dave, Sean, and I played Born to Expire uh, and, and until a hole was worn in the record or cassette or whatever. I mean, major, major album um, and, and a huge influence on Doggy Dog. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's so many good things that have happened and we'd love to come back and uh, rock with you in Philly again at This Is Hardcore or something else. We're, we're going to be booking a tour in America, at least starting with the East Coast uh, for next spring, hopefully. And uh, we'd love Count to make me Philly in, whatever you need. Yeah. If Thank you, you brother. If you need some holes, Phil, yeah. I'll tell you who does the shit. Whoa, oh, I wore my, my boy Gritty. <laughs> I wore my that's Gritty great. shirt. That's my, great. My sister lives in Philly. She's been yeah, been that's right. Like I met your sister. Years, so okay. yeah, she she got me this. Even though I hate the Flyers, Gritty's my guy. He's the best mascot. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> awesome! Thank um, you, Joe. We really appreciate you for this and for everything you've done for us uh, as well. And uh, my final word is, you know, our story has its ups and downs, but our friendship is strong. And that's what gets us through the hardest times. And we have each other. And when you have each other, you can overcome all the other bullshit. And I think that's, you know, putting it all in a nutshell. That's truly the unifying thing. I, I keep hearing through your whole story. You know, I mean, sounds like you guys grew up young kids influenced by so much cool shit. You guys brought an entire platform of different sounds to hardcore and punk. 
And then, you know, you guys had really got a chance to see at the high end of like a, you guys were sitting on the high water mark at a high water mark for a lot of hardcore punk bands. And it, it's such a cool thing. And to see you sitting here excited about the next chapter is absolutely fucking fantastic. Um, right. I'm going to, I'm going to link all your socials. Uh, Thanks, if you guys Jeff. need anything from me, I'm always here for you. And thank you for everything that you guys did, man. Sincerely. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it, brother. Uh-huh. And just, uh, we want to thank you for having us and for doing this for the music. We want to thank the hardcore scene for embracing us and allowing us to be part of it and, and supporting us along the way. Doggy Dog never claimed to be any one style, but the hardcore scene has had our back and supported us as much or more than any scene. So we're grateful for that. Oh, man, that really means a lot to a lot of people. You'd be, you'd be surprised. So make sure you check out the record. I guess we should say the whole name. This is a 14-track record, correct? This is a whole deal. This is the first big one, yeah. right? whole deal, about four, 45 minutes, yeah. See, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, this is I have a I have a bit from like a like a like a what do they call it? like an E thing about the record. It's um doggy okay. dog. And you guys have had four singles so far. If you guys have one specific spot where people can actually look all this up. Um our our doggy dog YouTube page okay. has all four has all four singles active. There was some little glitch talking about mistakes. Uh, our latest single came out Friday, but somehow it's only on Spotify in Europe. So <laughs> <laughs> shit happens, man. It's going to get corrected. And if the song is meant to do something, that's not going to stop it. So yeah, all the, all the music is on YouTube. It will be available uh, where you're streaming uh, platform of your choice uh, as far as October 20th the whole album's out and you can hear it all Dave and I are involved in the Instagram and Facebook so Perfect. any messages or things like that if you're following us and, and your your message comes to us one of us sees it we, we respond personally um, to communication and we've always been about it even at the biggest point uh, of our band's exposure we were out in the crowd at the merch booth taking pictures signing autographs shaking hands selfies whatever whatever people want we're fans of music too so we treated our fans like equals and peers that's definitely my experience of you guys have never been nothing but good people humble out happy just to be a part of the whole thing yeah here it is this is a 14 track record the free radicals it's going to be out october 20th and leading up to it, as we have another show or two, we'll be putting out. I'll keep mentioning it. Thank you guys once again. Thank you for the time. I know you guys got jobs to be at. So thank you. And um, we'll talk soon. All right, fellas? Thanks, Joe. We appreciate you having us on. Yeah, Take care, man. This is hardcore. We'll be back. Make sure to check out Doggy Dog's new record, which will be live and available October 20th. Hopefully to have these guys back in Philly. It'd be fucking awesome. Great conversation. Love hearing the way that they turned it around where a lot of bound bands would have gave in. Got some more shit coming up in the next couple weeks, and I'm, I'm stocking some some tracks. Getting ready to do some new shit. I uh, can't promise a rule of three, but it's not out of the running. Hopefully BSB gets back on their asses. Her Richie may even drop another podcast. Remember Keystone Jam, Saturday, December 16th. Shit's going to be fucking awesome. PhillyHCShows.com, T-I-H-E podcast. Hit me up on the Instagrams. Stop breaking my balls about what time shows start. Take care.